On the afternoon of August 28, 2003, at 2.20 in the afternoon, 46-year-old Brian Wells walked into a bank just outside of Erie, Pennsylvania, and handed the teller a note demanding $250,000 in cash. The note warned that he was wearing a live bomb and that he had limited time to complete the robbery before it detonated. By 3.18 p.m., that bomb did detonate, and Brian Wells was dead. Brian died surrounded by police officers, guns drawn and pointed at him. He spent his final moments asking for help and warning the officers that the bomb was real and that he was running out of time to find the keys he needed to unlock it. Immediately following his death, investigators found a set of very strange notes in Brian's car. Some of these notes were sending him on a scavenger hunt throughout Erie, starting with the bank robbery. Brian was supposed to complete a series of tasks that would lead him to the keys that would unlock the collar that kept the bomb hanging in front of his chest. The FBI, ATF, and the Pennsylvania State Police launched an investigation to try and find out who put Brian up to this. Who wrote the notes found in his car? Who was Brian Wells? What was his motive to participate in such an insane way to rob a bank? Did he participate willingly or was he a victim? Was he a conspirator? They quickly learned that Brian worked as a delivery driver for a local pizzeria. And then on the afternoon of his death, he delivered pizzas to an isolated TV tower off of Peach Street, a central location in this story. Before he died, Brian said he was accosted by a group of black men who locked the collar bomb around his neck and handed him the notes that sent him on a deadly scavenger hunt. It turned out there was only some truth to that statement. The police learned that the call that sent Brian out on his very last piece of delivery originated from a payphone in a nearby gas station. But after that, authorities were at a loss as to who else was involved and why Brian did what he did. Three days later, Brian's coworker died from a drug overdose, further confounding investigators. Was he involved in the heist? Did he have a hand in Brian's death and couldn't live with the guilt? Then a month after the bomb went off, on September 20th, a man named William Bill Rothstein called the police to report that there was a body in his freezer. He said the dead man was James Roden and that he had been murdered by Rothstein's former fiance and longtime friend Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Quickly, some investigators felt that this murder was connected to the death of Brian Wells, but it would take a while to prove it. This was just the beginning of FBI Major Case 203, an investigation that would gobble up thousands of hours of law enforcement work over several years. The investigation would be described as one of the most complicated and bizarre crimes in the annals of the FBI. Investigators worked to uncover a complex web of motives, plots, and conspirators all connected to the strange bombing. Who was the mastermind of the bank heist? Who was telling the truth when the co-conspirators started to turn on one another? Who was ultimately to blame for Brian's death? This is a crazy mystery that was a lot of fun to unravel. I hope you enjoy the ride on this true crime whodunit. The lives some people lead and the choices they make are so unbelievably insane edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Well, happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Welcome to the 451st straight week of The Suck. I'm Dan Cummins, The Suck Master, possible undercover store detective. And you are listening to Time Suck. Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, Triple M, a big hail to you all. Uh, Speaking of Triple M, Yamo time suck. Whoa, 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 Yamo time suck. Reintroducing for the first time the Yamo time suck design. 
Uh, a nod to our OG suckers, available in standard and premium T options. This Triple M inspired Time Suck calling card is now wearable for your daily Time Suck listening activity. Also added two mugs to the drink wear section as well. Uh, so many super fun colorways to choose from. To spice up your summer, head on over to badmagicmerch.com to pick up your swag today. And now just one more thing before we jump in. A little shout out to Post Falls Police Department Officer Nick McDaniel. Uh, Lindsay was in a car accident last week, several weeks back by the time you hear this. And she is totally okay. She was not harmed. Neither was the other driver. But both vehicles were towed away. Uh, thankfully, no physical injuries. Officer McDaniel was the uh, officer on scene, happens to be a fan. And before I got there, before he knew uh, Lindsay was my wife, he, he was already super cool. He didn't start being cool because somebody like showed up. Well, we talked a bit. He moved to uh, Post Falls from Hawaii because he didn't like having to do shit like uh, give tickets to people out on the beach during COVID for not wearing masks uh, at the beach. He seems like a good dude who, uh, you know, wants to be paid to protect, not paid to harass. And his bedside manner after an accident was A+. plus. Just wanted everything done by the book, wanted to make sure everybody was safe, make sure everybody got what they needed for their insurance companies, did so in a very professional and polite manner. And I'm sharing this because these kind of stories never get shared enough, right? We hear all the time about cops that don't do their job or that do something fucking terrible. But what about all the other officers risking their lives, working in a culture that is largely turned against them? Officers not doing it for the money. This guy retired when he left Hawaii, but got back into it because he loves serving and protecting. What about their stories? I think too many people don't want to share them because they're worried about public backlash, which is crazy. You know, how dare you admit you have respect for, you know, tough ass, the the tough ass job that cops do and the people who do it, do it well. I think there are far more good apples than bad, like Nick McDaniel. And again, thanks for uh, making Lindsay feel like safe after she got, you know, shook up and something terrible. And uh, yeah, thanks to the many officers who work tirelessly uh, like Nick to do what they do, including the ones who helped solve the pizza bomber death of the Brian Wells mystery. Segway. Uh, now we're into today's topic. Just like that. <laughs> this is uh, this is a fun story to tell. I was telling Lindsay uh, about this story last night after I finished research. And she's like, wait, what? They did what? And then what happened? Uh, one of the prosecutors involved in solving this mystery and punishing those responsible would describe the co-conspirators in the pizza bomber case as Twisted, intellectually bright, dysfunctional individuals who outsmarted themselves. And after going over the majority of the details of this case and letting them marinate in my mind for a little bit, it feels like a pretty accurate assessment. Uh, Without giving too much away in the beginning, I don't want to spoil this unraveling mystery for you. The Pizza Bomber case involved a very interesting group of people who all knew each other to varying degrees. The overall motive in the case was money, but each conspirator had their own additional reasons for getting involved in a crazy plan that did seem doomed from the very beginning. One conspirator was suffering from cancer. He considered himself highly intelligent, and maybe he was, and perhaps he wanted to go out with a bang to die knowing that he had outsmarted investigators. Another was already on the run from the law, so probably they needed money to continue living on the lam. Another conspirator seemed to want money so that they could pay someone else to commit an even bigger robbery of sorts. Love seems to have been a a factor in this twisted crime, The two people believed by most to be the masterminds of the pizza bomber heist had a long and complicated romantic history. And at least one party seemed willing to do just about anything for the other. And then there was Brian Wells, the primary victim in this case. He may have too uh, been too blinded by his attraction towards a woman he was romantically linked to to realize he was likely being used. 
very possibly set up to die from the very beginning, never intended to survive for very long following his part in the robbery. So poor Brian, that guy got in uh, way, way over his head on all of this. We'll start off today by getting to know who Brian was. And after that, we'll head straight for the timeline, starting on the day of his death, and we'll follow the investigation into his death as the FBI, ATF, and Pennsylvania State Police work together to uncover the many layers to the pizza bomber heist, ending with the convictions of some of the conspirators and some recent updates uh, regarding who's still alive, who's died, and more. So Brian Douglas Wells was born November 15th, 1956. He was the son of Rose M. and Harold C. Wells. Harold died on July 21st, 1990, after suffering for years with musculosclerosis. Uh, He and Rose had five children per his find-the-grave profile. However, a People Magazine article reported that Brian was one of seven children. And then a New York Times article states that he was one of at least six children. So between five and seven kids. Uh, The New York Times added that Brian was a single 46-year-old man who lived with three cats, slept on a mattress on the floor, and listened to music in his spare time. He was shy with people, but animated with pets, the kind of person who would get on all fours to play with the neighbor's dog. Yeah, this poor bastard. He was was also lonely as fuck when it came to women. Desperate enough to be the perfect mark for some cold bastards looking to send a stranger on a suicide mission. Uh, Brian grew up in a blue-collar area of Erie, Pennsylvania. Pretty uh, blue-collar city. Uh, Erie, the fifth largest city in Pennsylvania. Per the 2020 census, the population was over 94,000 people. The 1960 census, recorded uh, when Brian was a boy, listed the population as more than 138,000 people. So, a shrinking population, a symptom of being a casualty of the Rust Belt. The importance of American manufacturing, U.S. steel and coal production and commercial fishing began to gradually decline, resulting in a major population downturn in Erie, starting in the 1970s. Uh, It's been a minute, but I've done shows in Erie several times, stand-up shows. I went to Penn State Barron, uh, Erie's uh, Penn State satellite campus, I think three times, and went to uh, spend a weekend at a comedy club there that is no longer there, JR's JR's Last Laugh twice. Uh, The first time I was there with the original owners, uh, man, that sucked. One of my least favorite weekends in comedy. The owners were a husband and wife team in their 50s uh, when I was there and pretty notorious in the comedy community. They would do, uh, you know, have you Thursday through Saturday nights and the wife's father, who was literally in his 80s or 90s, he would be at the Thursday night show. And basically, if he thought you were funny, they would bring you back. And if he didn't think you were funny, you would not come back. Like their comedy barometer (laughs) was a random 90-ish year old man. And that is not how it is typically done because that's not a, a good way to you know, find out what your overall audience likes unless you have by far the oldest audience in all of stand-up. Well, Pops didn't like me. <laughs> so I didn't come back until uh, someone knew about the place. The owners didn't like me either. Uh, that first time they uh, told me I should do clean comedy, like the comic who opened up for me that week. They loved her. The husband literally told me I should change my act to be more like hers, which is, you know, fairly insulting. Uh, 10 years later, she's not really touring anymore. And, you know, I'm doing all right. So maybe fuck that guy and fuck his father-in-law. Don't let anyone convince you to stop being you. Thank you, Lucifina, for, uh, for uh, showing, me, showing me my path. Uh, sorry, been a while since I've uh, thought about Erie. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Uh, decades after Brian was born, Erie's still mainly a blue-collar city. Uh, still is compared to a lot of places. According to a 2018 article by the Erie Reader, the city's economy has not diversified at the same rate as other metropolitan areas around the country. Manufacturing still accounts for 22% of the local GDP, 
which is more than the state and national rate of about 12%. Erie is currently experiencing growth in the industrial sector for computer and electronics, so maybe it'll turn that uh, declining population trend around. Erie is also poorer than most cities. 24.7% of the population in Erie live in poverty compared to 15.8% of people in the county. Uh, Per 2010 census data, the median household income in Erie was around 28,000 compared to over 34,000 in the state of Pennsylvania and almost 42,000 nationally. So way lower than the national average. Erie might still have more people than the average city willing to, uh, I don't know, let someone attach a bomb to their neck to make make themselves some extra cash. Uh, Now that we know a little more about the setting of today's episode, let's learn a bit about Brian. He attended East High School in Erie and then dropped out uh, during his sophomore year in 1973. He failed algebra and Spanish, earned Ds in English, science and geography. His only A was in swimming. So super strong swimmer. Not strong in, well, anything else. Uh, If there were any famous alumni also coming out of the high school he went to, a school that has since been converted to a middle school, uh, the internet does not seem to know about them. Brian worked as a mechanic after dropping out, but was only modestly capable of working that field, according to the New York Times profile. As an adult, Brian would never own a computer, never really know how to use the internet. Pretty simple guy. Spent most of the 10 years before his death working as a pizza delivery driver. Around 2001, he moved to Arizona for a while to live with his younger brother and work at a carnival. He was placed in charge of keeping the funhouse mirrors clean. It was a good gig. Paid 130 k a year. Plus insurance and a matching 401k. But after just a few days, he was fired for thinking he had become trapped in a maze. Uh, He freaked out and smashed a bunch of mirrors to find the exit. He did not work at a carnival. I'm pretty sure they don't pay that much. Uh, He went to work with his brother at his brother's tool and dye shop. I was just hoping for a second. Somebody'd be like, holy shit, that's a lot of fucking money to clean funhouse mirrors. Uh, He went to work with his uh, brother at his brother's uh, tool and dye shop. And then the shop closed down and he moved back to Erie in less than a year. Brian's friends told the Times he was never rich but that he lived his Spartan existence with few complaints. At the time of the robbery, Brian was renting a cottage behind the home of his landlady, Linda Payne. He lived there for about five years at the time of his death. Linda told the team for the 2018 Netflix docuseries, Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist, that Brian was a good tenant. Always paid his rent on time, seemed happy living alone there with his cats. When Brian got into a car accident that damaged his car badly enough that he couldn't work, He told his landlady he would rather be homeless than move back in with his mom. And then Linda helped Brian buy a car for $1,800 so he could keep his pizza delivery job. And he did actually finish paying her back the week before he died. Linda said he was proud. He'd never accept the food we offered him, except maybe a cookie. Linda also said in another interview, material things weren't important to him. Uh, Regarding his car, a Geo Metro, she said he, uh, he thought the Geo had flashy hubcaps. They were too flashy for him, so he took them off. He might have been the only dude in history to ever think that any part of a Geo Metro was flashy. Uh, Brian was described by many as a loner. He was also courteous and gentle, according to acquaintances, kind of person who smiled and waved at people on the street. Uh, He liked to chat with his neighbors about the show Survivor, mystery novels, and randomly lawnmower engines. I feel like it'd be easier to find people to talk about the first two subjects there, but who knows? Maybe Erie was fucking filled with lawnmower engine enthusiasts. Although he had no interest in living with her, Brian still had a weekly steak dinner with his mom on Sundays leading up to his death. And sometimes he would take his mom and his mom's friend out to the movies or go watch a free outdoor concert in town. Everyone interviewed who knew Brian said that there was no way he could have plotted the bank heist. 
They believe he was either forced or tricked into participating. Brian was described by some who knew him as a childlike person. One individual told the New York Times that Brian was frankly too simple to come up with the heist. Uh, Brian did like scavenger hunts. He tried to do the local paper's key hunt, which let readers uh, led readers to different landmarks in the county. But Brian was never able to complete the scavenger hunts. Must have been fucking terrified when he had to uh, complete a scavenger hunt that his life literally depended on in his final moments. Uh, Brian also liked to gamble, according to Linda Payne's statements. Overall, Brian seemed like a, a simple guy who enjoyed a simple life. So why would someone like that try to steal $250,000 from a bank? Was Brian Wells an innocent victim of the pizza bomber heist or involved somehow? Let's see if we can find out when we now cover the pizza bomber heist story in detail in today's timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. August 28, 2003. The day Brian Wells, well, kind of fucking blew up a little bit. Uh, Brian's day started off normal. He jogged for about 15 minutes after eating some cinnamon sugar toast, knocking back a few Capri Suns. He ran around his house about five times at a full sprint. He worked a heavy bag some 12-ounce gloves for a few rounds before doing a bit of yoga while watching Three's Company. He licked each of his cats clean, took a dump in their litter box, and then moonwalked into his Geo Metro. <laughs> of course, that's nonsense. I just like imagining that that ridiculous sequence of events would be someone's normal morning routine. Just fucking every morning. Every morning, I get up. I have my Capri Suns. I have my cinnamon sugar toast. I sprint around the house. I heavy bag. Yoga, Three's Company. I fucking shit in the litter box. I can't leave my house unless I f- complete that sequence of events. Um, here's what he actually did. He bought breakfast at McDonald's uh, or bought, I say brought, he bought breakfast at McDonald's. <laughs> be even, that'd be a weird morning routine if you would bring, okay, I get up, I bring my breakfast to McDonald's. I like to eat it around other people. I uh, know he buys breakfast at McDonald's, picks up a newspaper, drives to work in that flashy ass Geo Metro of his, like a real show off. He worked at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria, which was located in a strip mall on Peach Street. Just after 1.30 p.m., shop owner, Tony uh, DeTomo, a Tony DeTomo, answered the phone and took a delivery order for two small pepperoni pizzas. The caller said they were part of a construction crew. The address they gave was located down a dirt road leading to a massive TV tower belonging to a local CBS affiliate about four miles from the shop. There was a small building by the tower that stayed unoccupied most days, according to investigators. DeTomo had trouble fully understanding some of what the other person uh, on the other end of the line was saying, so he gave the phone to Brian, and then Brian was able to write out directions to get to the tower, and he headed out with the pizzas. It was later determined that this call came from a Shell gas station near the tower, and later I'll share who uh, seems to have placed that call as we start peeling off more and more layers of the heist onion. Well, soon after heading out to make the delivery, Brian robbed the PNC Bank in Summit Town Center, a shopping center just south of Erie. I've actually spent a few afternoons in a, in a coffee shop in that center working on some stand-up bits. Had no clue any of this shit happened when I did. The FBI established in an affidavit that Brian entered the bank at 2.20 p.m. A teller called 911 12 minutes later, 2.32 p.m. to report the robbery. Security footage uh, shows Brian entering the bank with an odd-looking cane and collar bomb around his neck, which was hidden by a white t-shirt with the word guess written on it with a marker. Uh, the cane was actually a modified shotgun. Brian handed the teller a note with instructions and demands for $250,000 in cash. Lamont King, a now retired corporal with the Pennsylvania State Police, received information about the PNC bank uh, being robbed by a man wearing a collar bomb shortly after that 911 call was placed. 
and he and some other officers were dispatched to the bank. Witnesses at the bank described Brian's demeanor as calm during the robbery. He uh, stood in line briefly before he walked around a customer, gave the note to the teller, even reached into a basket and got out a fucking lollipop. Because why not? Might as well enjoy a sucker while you're robbing a bank with an explosive device locked to your body. Then when he left, a witness said he walked out, quote, like Charlie Chaplin, swinging the bag and the cane gun, according to a FBI agent. Seemed pretty fucking pleased with himself. Brian left the bank, stopped at McDonald's next door, uh, picked up a second note, then started to drive down Peach Street, but didn't make it very far. Police units arrived, saw his vehicle, pulled him over in the parking lot of Eyeglass World next to McDonald's. He'd only made it a few hundred feet from the bank before he was apprehended. State troopers got Brian out of the vehicle, handcuffed him. Then he said something about having a bomb on him. A state trooper approached, cut his shirt with scissors, revealing the collar bomb around his neck. According to retired trooper Lamont King, the general consensus was that it was a fake bomb, but they were still treating it like it was real. Oh, they sure were. Uh, Watching police cam footage from one of the vehicles uh, of them cutting Brian's shirt, or maybe his local TV, uh, uh, like a station footage, they acted like they 100% thought it was real when they got a good look at it. Those dudes hustled their asses off to get the fuck away from that guy. I mean, can't blame him. King arrived on the scene when Brian was already cuffed. Brian was speaking to the police uh, calmly, saying things like, can you at least take these freaking handcuffs off? It's going to go off. Why is it no one's trying to come get this thing off of me? Well, probably because they don't want to get fucking blown up. Local news crews were also at the scene, in addition to the police, as I kind of referenced there, and they recorded Brian's final moments, which were presented in the Evil Genius documentary. And I watched him literally get exploded. And it is as, uh, it's as intense as you might imagine, might expect. Uh, Trooper King noticed that Brian seemed nervous but not agitated before he died. He seemed very concerned about getting the collar off, but not until it started beeping a few minutes uh, before he died. Uh, King, later reflecting on it all, said he didn't think Brian thought the bomb was real until it was about to explode. King thinks that uh, he probably appeared relatively carefree prior to the beeping because, you know, he didn't really actually think his life was in danger. So someone tricked this guy into putting a real bomb around his neck. As soon as the police realized there was a bomb, they called the Erie Bomb Squad, but they were over 10 miles away. In order to protect the public, the police closed down Peach Street immediately, which created some traffic issues that delayed the bomb squad's arrival. Uh, Trooper King learned that Brian worked for Mama Mia's Pizzeria shortly before he died, and he sent officers over to do some interviews to get some intel. Brian's coworkers uh, confirmed that they saw him leave the shop to deliver two pizzas to an unoccupied radio tower. King then sent uh, officers over to the tower to investigate. Brian told King and other troopers that a group of black men jumped him and locked the collar bomb around his neck, then forced him to rob the bank. King's gut immediately told him, "Ah, Brian's not telling the truth here. He's lying. Brian said he was supposed to follow directions that would lead him to different keys to unlock the bomb's collar apparatus that kept it attached to his neck. Brian was captured on video saying, he pulled the key out and started a timer. I heard the thing ticking when he did it. Brian never described his alleged assailants in any detail and did not identify them before he died. When the bomb started beeping, as I mentioned, Brian's demeanor immediately changed. He started to say, maybe you can get the keys to get out of this thing. I don't know if I have enough time now. I'm not lying. He asked the troopers to uh, go to the next site in the scavenger hunt for him, try and get the keys to unlock the bomb. And then moments later, he died on camera in dramatic fashion. In his final moments, Brian sat handcuffed on the ground, surrounded by police officers, still pointing guns at him. The bomb continued beeping, starting to beep faster. Brian's warning the police it's going to go off, right? The bomb is beating faster and faster. In about 10 seconds, uh, you know, after it really starts speeding up, it detonates fatally wounding Wells. Trooper King said when officers rushed towards his body following the detonation, his eyes just got real wide 
Then they went to the back of his head and that was the end of him. He was dead in seconds. Tom uh, Stankiewicz, Erie Bomb Squad commander, said they received word the bomb had already detonated when they were about four blocks away. When the bomb squad approached Brian, you know, they saw he was already deceased. Part of the bomb was still around his neck. The bomb squad checked his body and vehicle for more bombs before proceeding. And then, you know, notes were found in Brian's car. Bunch of notes full of instructions. They provided directions and rules for the scavenger hunt that was supposed to lead Brian to the keys that would save his life. There were more notes in the bank that he'd left. Uh, In total, Brian had nine pages of notes. Some were for Brian. Others were for the bank manager and staff. One was for the police. Uh, Based on information in the notes, King and other officers quickly went to the next location to see if they could capture anyone responsible for putting the bomb on Brian. While Brian's notes demanded $250,000, in the end, he only walked away with $8,702 that was quickly recovered. So he got just a little less than he was hoping for and didn't make it quite as far from the bank as he had planned. Let's now take a look at these letters right after today's mid-show sponsor break. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks for sticking around. Now let's examine the notes Brian Wells brought to the bank he robbed. We'll start with a note of instructions written specifically for Brian. I feel like the right background music, uh, you know, will really kind of increase the intensity of these letters. So allow me to play a little of that. <laughs> Let's talk about some rules. You must follow a course of instructions to find keys, combination codes, to disarm the bomb. Do not insert keys in the keyholes until instructed. Some keyholes are booby trapped <laughs> to prevent tampering. Drive 60 miles per hour throughout the course. Use only two or three minutes at each stop. The well, sentry will be watching at each stop to ensure you're not being followed. Don't do anything crazy. <laughs> I'll stop. I know that's probably super fucking annoying, <laughs> but it makes me laugh every time to think about a new listener hearing me do that and just thinking, why the fuck would he think that that music plus that voice would add value to what he is reading? That is so tonally off. Uh, more appropriate music now for the notes. Four. Bomb has tripwires forcing or tampering will detonate. 5. All weapons papers, containers, tapes, etc. must be returned to us. Each item you find after dropping money has a key and or combination word. You will need to decipher the combination. This will disarm some tripwires before you unlock. This procedure is to make sure you leave no materials behind. Bring note, container, and tape with you. And here's another note uh, found in Brian's car that was intended for him. 
bomb hostage. You are to go to PNC Bank at Summit Town Center on Peach Street. Quietly give the following demand notes to a receptionist or bank manager. Do not cause alarm. Get retired money and delivered to a get retired money and delivered to a specified location by following notes. Price supposed to be required. That you will collect as you race against time. Each note leads to the next note and key until finished. You will collect several keys and a combination to remove bomb after police won't charge you because you were a hostage. Most important rule, do not radio, phone, or contact anyone. Alerting authorities, your company, or anyone else will bring your death. If we spot police vehicles or aircraft, you will be killed. This little bit of info pushes me uh, more towards thinking that Brian believed the bomb was fake. Right? When initially apprehended by the police, he does not seem to panic at all. Not like someone might if they truly thought someone was going to detonate uh, remotely the bomb if any cops showed up. You know, maybe he just, or maybe he just wanted to believe that the bomb was fake. Maybe I'm just hoping that he believed that in his final, well, before his beeping final moments. This powerful booby trap bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. Using time attempting to escape, it will fail and leave you short of time to follow instructions. Do not delay. You have less than 55 minutes until detonation. Spend no more than 20 minutes in bank. You will need 25 minutes travel time. You have a safety margin less than 10 minutes. Use all remaining time to retrieve and obey our instructions. You will gain additional time by finding the first of several keys. As you follow our instructions, you'll be given all keys and combinations after the money is received and safely counted. We will leave keys and combination as you progress. Uh, and this further pushes me more towards thinking Brian believed the bomb was fake. Maybe the people who put it on his neck lied to him. Right, they did lie about being able to gain additional time. When the bomb components were examined, it was clear that the device was not sophisticated enough to be affected by a remote. A fake phone was attached to the bomb and not connected to shit. The timers were just kitchen timers. There was no way to add time to this type of explosive device. If you delay, disobey, or alert anyone, you will die. It is your choice to live or bring death. If you do not obey and leave bank without money, you will die. So will others. Stay calm and do as instructed to survive. We're following your moves in cars to make sure you obey. Three sentries are driving and looking out for authorities. We are scanning police radio frequencies and cell phone calls. If police or aircraft are involved, you will be destroyed. Alerting authorities or anyone else will prevent you from completing the mission. Go to the bank and quietly enter with the weapon you were given. Give the demands to the receptionist or manager. Avoid panicking the tellers or customers. Use the weapon if anyone does not cooperate or attempts to leave the bank. Weapon instructions are near the trigger. You must deliver money alone. You must return all weapons, notes, to us. Turn yourself in to bank and police after we release you to safety. Act now, think later, or you will die. And on the following page, step number one, proceed now. Take the following demands to PNC Bank and get $250,000. Instruct bank managers to help or else everyone will be killed. Enforce demands with your weapon and bomb. Two, put $250,000 in black garbage bag. Leave your driver's license at the bank and promise to return. Then return money to us by following a course of instructions. You will receive further instructions as you proceed. Why would he be instructed to leave his driver's license at the place where he just committed a robbery? Right? Because they, they knew he would never come back, I'm guessing, like that he would be dead. The heist masterminds must have just wanted authorities to know, you know, who did it 
if he got blown up in a way where it was impossible to identify his exploded remains. I'm guessing. Do not leave bank without money or you will die. Carry out money in the trash bag and follow instructions. Stay close to bank manager or employees at all times during robbery. Bring yellow striped copies with you. You must bring weapon with you. Exit the bank with the money and go to the McDonald's restaurant. Get out of car and go to the small sign reading drive through open 24 hours. In the flower bed by the sign, there is a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions. And below that section is a little sketch of the sign with the rock. If you can't find all instructions, alt drop sequence. Use only in emergency, may be deadly. Route 90, park eastbound next to Countryside Trailer Park. Take everything, walk to Grubert Overpass. Warning, find notes before. Then there's a little arrow pointing to the section above. We are following you and watching at all stops. If you do not go to the bank, we will detonate. If anyone follows or interferes, we may leave and allow timers to detonate or call cell phone detonator. During the exchange, you may be required to identify one of our vehicles, a green coupe, and we will then remove front hubcaps. Cooperate quickly and you will survive. We have gone to great lengths in planning and designing keys to unlock bomb to ensure that you may survive. There is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely. Well, there was a note attached to that rock at McDonald's. Uh, Brian found that just before he died, and that said, leave McDonald's from the rear and drive behind and around the side of Eyeglass World. Stop at Peach Street. And that's what he did right before he died. Important, you must get out and tie the orange tape taped on bomb case around the fire hydrant at Peach Street to signal that you have money and left the bank. Two, Go south on Peach Street. Take right uh, 90 west for two miles. At interchange, 178, take 79 north for two and one quarter miles. At exit 180, pull to the side of the off-ramp and stop next to the yellow traffic light. Warning sign. There's a sketch sign. Sorry, the the way this is written is weird. Uh, Go directly across the grass to the right and into the woods. The container with the orange tape has your next instructions. Three. Place all notes, containers, and tapes in the money bag and proceed. And then the bottom half of the page is a map. Leave note, container, and tape with money. Um, excuse me. I feel like that they did expect him to to make it that far, right? Maybe far enough to get them the money, perhaps. Seems like a pretty fucking stupid plan, right? I mean, once he had the money, why make him stop very close to the bank to get to the next clue? And why wouldn't you just let him get out of there as fast as possible? Drive to the next location, out in the woods or something, drop the money off first. Then bounce to the next place to get a key that doesn't exist and get blown up. Uh, I will reveal later a part of the plan not written about in the notes uh, that does not go according to plan regarding quickly getting conspirators the robbery money. I think this was all written to throw investigators off. And then there was a note addressed to the bank manager that said, Bank manager, important. Go to vault now. Ensure all people remain quiet and calm. Prevent anyone from alarming authorities or contacting outside. Close bank. All people remain inside until complete. Act fast or bomb hostages' time will be exhausted. We may detonate bomb at any time if police are seen. Resistance will be met with the following. One, the bomb. We will detonate bomb with cell phone, or its timer will detonate in minutes if we don't receive our demands or any of us is obstructed. The bomb has more than 10 booby traps and can only be disarmed and removed by finding and following our instructions and keys. Two, retaliate. To ensure money is delivered and a safe return to our apartment in one hour, Sentry number three has tracked several customers and employees from your bank to their homes. He will sniper or bomb their residence. 
If we do not receive the money, we will then continue assaults until much greater demands, millions, are met. During that time, banks' reputation and revenue will decline as we notify the press that people are getting hurt because you did not cooperate. That part is fucking weird to me. <laughs> like he has to explain to them like how business works. Listen, if you have to spend more millions, well, that's that's less money for your bank's profit. That's not good. And also just say, uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, if we have to sniper and bomb some of your coworkers, their murders are going to be the least of your problems, bud. Your bank's reputation and revenue also going to take some bullets. Like, why did they think that telling the bank manager that fucking snipers and assassins with bombs monitoring several employees and customers would not be enough of a threat? Like, why do they feel the need to add the revenue and reputation bullshit? I just, I don't know. That part reads pretty amateurish to me. Use no ink bombs, markings, tracking, locating device, or any other security measures. We will screen for these, and if found, will make us detonate bomb. Defiance guarantees death and revenge. We are using scanners and other detection methods to verify the money is clear. Channels are monitoring for police calls. We will detonate if the authorities are involved. Myself, wife, and partner are following sentries to ensure compliance. After receiving money, we will provide bomb hostage with the location of the final key and combination to disarm and remove bomb. Wait one hour after bomb hostage returns to contact police or we will one bomb or two retaliate. I like how whoever wrote this mentions their wife. That's so fucking funny to me. That's so weird in a bank robbery note. Hey, bud, don't think of pulling any funny business. Not only am I watching you, as is my bank robbing partner, but also my wife. It's helping keep an eye on things. Like, like that's going to add weight to the note. Oh, fuck. His, his wife is helping. This motherfucker is serious about the robbery. Like, who would you add to a bank robbery note uh, to just be needlessly ridiculous? And also, my second cousin will be watching. My grandmother's bridge partner will be keeping an eye on things. And another thing, my stepsister's nephew will be not taking his eye off of you. His one eye. He lost the other one in a fire. Don't ask him about it. Uh, Jumping back into the uh, real note now. If police radio APB roadblocks use aircraft or in any way try to interfere with us, we will detonate by phone or allow timer to detonate. This event must not become public knowledge and featured on news or we will too retaliate. Like how he has to add that as too. Now, gather employees with access codes to vault and work fast to fill bag with $250,000. You have only 15 minutes. No matter what, bomb hostage must not leave bank without money. Cooperate fully in bomb hostage. Customers and employees will be safe. Do not slow the bomb hostage's progress or he will die. Cooperate fully and no one will get hurt. Proceed now to vault. Time is running out. Read other pages later. Whoever was orchestrating all this uh, didn't think those instructions were enough for the bank manager, and they wrote a fuck, another fucking note. <laughs> bank manager. Summary. No alarm, panic, or police. Closed doors. Everyone must remain in bank, or we will explode bomb and later assault your associates and customers. We are monitoring everything. You now have only 15 minutes to comply. I thought they only had 15 minutes earlier. Attempting to stop us will explode bomb. There's no possible way to disarm it. Comply with demand A or B, bomb hostage will use the remaining time to follow instructions that he will receive as he proceeds to deliver money. Money will be inspected before we give him keys and combination. If we are prevented from receiving or using money or see, hear any police or aircraft, we will one, bomb, and two, retaliate. (laughs) He likes to say retaliate. If we are safe, you are safe. Bomb hostage will return safe after delivery. 
do not contact authorities until one hour after bomb hostage returns, or we will, too, retaliate. Demands. Bomb hostage must deliver one of the following amount to us, depending on your available funds. Safe bills only. We will screen for die packs, transmitters, and any security devices before releasing bomb hostage. Use plan A only if you do not have more funds available. A. $150,000. 150000 50 and 20s only, 50s preferred, prevents only one bomb to save bomb hostage, but we will too retaliate. Then there's B. $250,000. 250000 100000 and hundreds accepted, prevents both bomb and retaliate. <laughs> Actually, one bomb and two retaliate. Guarantees everyone's safety. That's such a weird thing. It's <laughs> of, you can listen, here's how this is going to play out. You can give us $150,000, but then we will fucking still retaliate, but the bomb won't go off. Or you can give a $250,000, like it's, what a weird, like segmented situation there. Listen, you can give us 50 bucks and we're going to fucking kill everyone you know. All right. You can give us a, th- you can give us $40,000. We're going to kill fucking two of your cousins. But after that, we're going to like kind of chill out for a while. You could give us 135000 I'm going to make you suck my dick. And I'm going to fucking kill one of your kids. But that's it. Like, like what a weird, just fuck. I don't understand why it's not just the one thing or, or nothing. Anyway, detailed instructions follow on the next page. Important. Timing is crucial. Quietly get assistance and go to vault while continuing. And then he repeats that thing from earlier. Act now, think later, or you will die. He loved that. This motherfucker, or these motherfuckers, love writing notes. Doesn't it feel like that was way more info than was necessary? Like, easy on the word retaliate. The note author loves to mention, to retaliate. Also, they they really expect this bank manager to care a lot about the life of the bomb hostage. This next note, uh, these guys wrote a fucking book. This one's for the receptionist. Receptionist. Do not cause panic or many people will be killed. Sounding any alarm will interrupt this action and guarantee injuries and death. Involving authorities at this point will get the hostage and other people killed. Immediately, without causing alarm, you must contact the bank manager in private. The bomb hostage must accompany you. Give manager the following demands. Bomb is expertly booby-trapped and cannot be disarmed in time until keys are found by following instructions immediately. Bomb hostage needs less than 20 minutes in bank and 30 minutes to deliver. No money, no keys. If any one of us is stopped or apprehended, we will detonate bomb or its timer will run out. We will, surprise, retaliate if interrupted. And then yet a fucking another note, this one addressed to the police. Police. If others alert police too soon, we will, one, retaliate. That used to be two, now it's one. But you may still say bomb hostage. To do so, all police vehicles, aircraft, must stand down and assemble all units at the specified location. Country fair and eyeglasses and eyeglass world parking lots. No lights. Vehicles face away from the road. Light three flares and place next to fire hydrant at eyeglass world to indicate full cooperation. I love three instead of one. Stop no traffic in Erie County during this time. All nearby units must gather at this location. For every 15 units we count, we will spare one retaliation target. You can be sure it is in our best interest to act upon and maintain our future credibility regarding these matters. Important. No surveillance aircraft. We must be allowed to continue our board. The bomb hostage will die. After completion, this event must not be reported to the public by any media or other means. If officials discuss this case with the public or members of the press, we will, can you guess? Retaliate. We have, it's number two this time now. 
We have prepared an ambush for police vehicles that attempt to follow the bomb hostage. You can only protect the bomb hostage and everyone else by staying clear. Our team is in radio contact. If any of us is stopped or apprehended, the bomb will detonate. If bomb hostage is delayed for more than 10 minutes, he will not have enough time to continue. Our team has spent combined seven and a half years in prison perfecting this plan. Do not think you can outsmart us in less than one hour. Save bomb hostage and people targeted for retaliation by standing down. Bomb hostage must be alone and use no radios or cell phones. Do not follow. All units must go to specified location and stand down to allow bomb hostage to continue, then return alive. Interrupting his progress in any way will use up his delivery time and get him killed. Bomb cannot be disarmed. It has more than 10 tripwires, and any of three timers will detonate it. They cannot be stopped. The only way is to remove it from hostage and allow it to detonate in the safe area we have arranged. Attempting to open or remove the bomb will detonate it. It can only be removed by disarming the tripwires, then removing it with a combination of special keys. We cannot provide those if we are stopped or tracked. We have planned for dozens of contingencies to ensure we are not followed or tracked. Stopping or tracking any one of us or hostage will cause the rest of us to one, bomb, and two, retaliate. Bomb hostage will be instructed how to filter and electronically screen for tracking security devices. If found, he cannot deliver and then bomb will explode. Cooperate fully and no one will get hurt. If nothing else, these bank robbers plan the note writing portion of the heist more thoroughly than any bank robbers before them in all of fucking human history. I feel like they wrote more for this one robbery than all of the prohibition era bank robbing gangsters combined. Okay, this next note. Yes, we're still not done. This one's just for anyone who just, I guess, works at the bank. Additional note. Our enforcement policy. Bomb hostage was provided with weapons to enforce cooperation. The bank note has the life of the bomb hostage, its customer and employee safety, its reputation and legal liability in its hands. Success option. You must assist bomb hostage and follow instructions exactly. Avoid outside involvement until the bomb hostage returns to turn himself in. This will save the bomb hostage and prevent to retaliate. Greater complications will bring greater demands. So keep this simple. Be smart. Failure option. If we have not returned to our apartment with the money demanded, the bomb hostage will die. Others involved will be dead or hurt. Your customers will be attacked. I thought this was for the customers. Uh, I guess this is for anybody. And the press and customers will condemn you. Attacks will continue until million-dollar demands are met. The most certain way to fail is to contact police prematurely. If we ever see, hear, smell police or aircraft, we will, one, I bet you can guess, bomb. You must wait one hour after the bomb hostage returns to alert authorities, or we will, two, mm -hmm, retaliate. The press must not broadcast this event. Our descriptions or rewards must not be posted anywhere. No one must copy our method. Investigation must not cross state lines. These rules will be enforced with two, retaliate, which may also include members of the press and more. I'm going to fucking kill everybody, guys. Time is running out, so don't be foolish. Total compliance is the only option that can be safely achieved. Knowing that the money is insured should make your choices clear. And then a section called the troublemakers. P.S. If any of you fuck up this robbery, it will be our life's mission to fuck up your lives. We have followed your customers and employees home. We know where your families live. It is most important that you wait until bomb hostage returns before calling police and provide as much money as you can meet our demand. If vault is not being opened by now, you are using a bomb hostage's safety margin and he may die. We may detonate bomb if he spends too much more than 20 minutes in bank. It's crazy to me that they act like they know where just random customers who might happen to be there, like where their families would live. 
Like to me, that would be a tip of like, this is, this is fucking nonsense. This is all nonsense. Um, but I guess the bomb was real. And then finally, fucking finally, 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 one last note uh, written to the bank's custodian. Because why not? Custodian, what you need to do. Keep the floor clean, but make sure it is not wet. Not dirty, but also not wet if you don't want us to retaliate. Uh, to retaliate. A clean floor will expedite the bank robbing process and help ensure the bomb hostage's survival by giving him more time to find life-saving keys. A wet floor, though. Boy, howdy. That could spell disaster for many. If the bomb hostage should slip and fall due to too much slippery cleaning solution and or water and or too much dust or filth and whatnot, we will, too, retaliate. We will, too, retaliate so fucking hard you don't even know our two retaliation will make all of the world's previous two retaliators seem like sweet little fucking baby boys who always kiss their mommies on their cheeks and always shook their father's hands firmly but not aggressively while making an appropriate amount of respectful eye contact. If we must to retaliate due to unnecessary filth or slipperiness due to too much or not enough cleaning, we will be forced to detonate one, the bomb, and our sentries and snipers will kill fucking everyone you've ever met in your whole goddamn life except for you janitor we're gonna let you live to think about what you've done and it's gonna haunt you for the rest of your days back now think later or you will die janitor not physically though spiritually and probably mentally you will be reduced to nothing more than a whimpering fool whose last intelligible words will be pleased no more to retaliating i have been too retaliated to death all right, so maybe they didn't write that fucking last note to the custodian. But they did write all the other all, all the other notes. Okay, now with Brian Wells' dad, uh, these notes found in Brian's car, investigator's hand. The investigation into who put the bomb on Brian begins. What kind of retaliatory bastards were up to this? And it starts off a jurisdictional nightmare. The ATF thought it should be uh, their investigation because the bomb was involved. Local law enforcement felt it was their crime to solve because of where the crime occurred. And the FBI thought it was their investigation because of the robbery. Uh, in the end, the FBI would lead the investigation with local law enforcement and ATF assisting. Before lead agent Jerry Clark took over for the FBI, the bomb squad on the scene went to the next site in a scavenger hunt and found the next clue inside a coffee can uh, close to a stoplight warning sign. Now, Brian was supposed to drive from Interchange Road to 79 South near the McKeon Township exit. At the next site, the police found orange tape tied to a tree with the word Vietnam written on it. As they're looking at the site, they saw a minivan approaching them uh, from the other side of a field. It appears that the occupants were surprised to see the police. Driver stopped, backed up, spun around, and fled. And the police were not able to catch up due to the distance between their vehicle and this other one. So did whoever was in that minivan plan on letting the bomb take Brian out there and then take the money? Let's take a minute now to meet three more lead investigators who will be referenced throughout the episode. We've already met Lamont King, uh, who was uh, one of the first responding state troopers. Now, uh, Special Agent Jerry Clark, again, lead investigator for the FBI in the Pizza Bomber case. Uh, Clark retired from the FBI in 2011 after the conclusion of the Pizza Bomber case. Not coincidentally, I'm sure. He followed it through until the very end and then moved on to something else. He worked in law enforcement for a total of 27 years. In addition to the FBI, he worked for the DEA and the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. Clark has a PhD in criminology and public service leadership from Capella University. Currently employed as an associate professor and chair of the criminal justice department in Gannon University in Erie, uh, as far as we can tell. Also president and owner of Fisher Security, a division of Jerry Clark Enterprises. Uh, in 2003, Jason Wick had been an ATF agent since 1989. 
He worked several high-profile cases, including the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center and the downing of United Airlines Flight 93 on 9-11. Agent Wick would work as an ATF agent for 25 years. He is currently an assistant professor of criminalistics and faculty representative for athletics at Gannon University as well. Criminalistics defined as scientific tests or techniques used in connection with the detection of crime. Uh, Before moving on, maybe I've just had uh, John Wick on the brain too much lately. But doesn't the name Jason Wick conjure up an image of John's maybe less impressive brother? Like, Like John Wick can walk out of a room unarmed where 20 trained killers have just tried to take him out all at the same time. Jason Wick can almost win a game of dodgeball played against junior high kids. (laughs) <laughs> like like he'll make it to the last three or four players you know he's kind of quick but someone always fucking blasts him while he's distracted throwing at somebody else he's a nice guy he's, he's a great guy he just doesn't have john's you know reflexes and composure uh next up pennsylvania state trooper sergeant david gluth also asked to join the fbi investigation and i uh i don't really uh know anything else uh, about him i'm sure he's an awesome guy just not a lot of info out there about uh gluth beyond his involvement in this case so sorry dave on the night of August 28th, the day before uh, Brian died, Agent Jerry Clark drafted an affidavit with the U.S. Attorney's Office and investigators searched Brian's home. They found no physical evidence linking Brian to the bombing, but did find an address book with the names and phone numbers of local sex workers in it. And uh, that is probably why, you know, he didn't want to live with mom, which is fair. Uh, this discovery sets the investigation back by about six months. Investigators felt it necessary to call every single name on the list, then spend a lot of time with each of the ladies, really get to know them. Try and see what kind of information they could uh, get from them once the sex workers truly believed they were just another paying client and not a member of law enforcement. Or that didn't happen. Or that idea would probably not be approved by anyone in the department except maybe one guy who's close to retirement and wants to see what he can get away with. Brian's body was transported to the coroner's office around 3 a.m. because the collar bomb will be the main piece of evidence in this case. The coroner's office decides to do a surgical decapitation of Brian. Erie County Deputy Coroner Korak Timmon Said in 2018 when interviewed for Netflix's, uh, you know, Evil Genius docuseries, it was probably still is the most difficult decision I've ever made. It was done in a way that was, uh, I mean, it's difficult to describe, but it was done in a very uh, caring way. That is a weird way to describe cutting somebody's head off. Uh, with the help of the state police, the FBI, still tracing Brian's last steps, found tire impressions that indicated Brian's vehicle was at the TV tower. Also found Brian's shoe impressions and a scuff mark in the dirt there which indicated a struggle, perhaps a struggle as they put on the collar. Maybe he had second thoughts. Maybe he uh, never agreed to have that role in the heist. The FBI tried to find forensic evidence on Brian's body, such as DNA and fingerprints, but uh, no luck. Just three days later, August 31st, Brian Wells' friend and coworker, 43-year-old Robert Panetti, dies from a drug overdose. Suspicious timing, obviously considering the circumstances. Panetti refused medical assistance around 5 a.m. on the day he died. And then his family found him unresponsive in a bed a few hours later. Robert had a history of substance abuse, according to Lebanon, Pennsylvania's The Daily News. Preliminary testing showed methadone and Valium-type drugs in his system. When the coroner's office learned who Panetti was, they pulled back, set up a perimeter to look for evidence that might have connected his death to Brian's, according to Deputy Coroner Timmon. Further testing determined that Robert Panetti overdosed on methadone and antidepressants mixed with cold medicine. Panetti had just become an important subject in the investigation before he died. For his death, he was nervous, looking for protection because he was worried about the robbery masterminds, thinking they were going to come for him next, according to state police investigator David Gluth. 
FBI agents met with Robert at the pizzeria, tried to interview him, but he was working, and he asked to move the interview to Monday, September 1st. Brian's landlady, Linda Payne, told Evil Genius that Brian liked to gamble with Panetti. She wondered if the two, or at least one of them, might have suddenly needed money badly enough to rob a bank. A week later, on September 8th, 2003, investigators pursuing evidence to corroborate Brian's claims of being worried about other robbers searched an apartment in Erie. Uh, the resident of this apartment was a man whose girlfriend claimed she knew Brian Wells. His name was never released to the public, and he was never charged in relation to the case. According to Agent Clark, their so-called prostitute team, which was created because of Brian's notebook, looked into this man because he was in a relationship with a sex worker. He also had a history of some military background with explosives. FBI also had a Mamma Mia's Pizzeria team. Oh, that's the fucking team to be in. The Mamma Mia's Pizzeria team! Uh, that was investigating a disgruntled former employee who threatened shop owner uh, Tony Totomo. They uh, described this former employee uh, as having an alibi. I love these teams. I wonder how many other teams they had. A uh, quick little roll call, everybody, before we start the meeting. I'll make sure everybody's here. Make sure all the teams are here. Prostitution team. Uh, check. Mamma Mia's Pizzeria team. Uh, here. PNC Bank team? Check. Might be more clues than McDonald's team. Mm-hmm. Who's taking Brian's mom and her friend to steak dinner now, team? Check. Keeping an eye on Brian's three cats, team? Mm-hmm. Going to dive bars to see if anyone's bragging about putting bombs on any other people's next team. All right, looks like we have uh, all the teams here. That's great. Uh, also on September 8th, the FBI released sketches of two men who were acting suspiciously around the time of Brian's death. One of them was wearing a backpack trying to cross a busy road. The other man was, quote, running feverishly from a wooded area. That is suspicious when you see somebody running feverishly from a wooded area. One of the locations Brian was supposed to stop at was uh, close to where these two men were seen. Meanwhile, other investigators were working on analyzing the collar bomb. The ATF put the bomb back together, but they could not match any specific tools to the bomb as far as exactly what was used to build it. ATF agent Jason Wick, uh, I keep thinking about him playing dodgeball, explained that bomb makers often throw tools away and try not to purchase materials to make bombs if necessary using what they already have or what others around them have, you know, kind of lying around instead. Investigators determined that the case and collar components would have taken somebody around a full month to assemble. According to Wick, there were red herrings incorporated into the device designed to prevent the bomb squad from tampering with it, such as meaningless wires and a plastic cell phone with no purpose. He said in that uh, docu-series, the device was fairly sophisticated, although at the end of the day, it was just two pipe bombs and two timers. Another component of the bomb was a back plate that was uh, scoured to create shrapnel. The plate fractured when the bomb detonated, but didn't actually shrapnel. It caused a large wound in Brian's chest, about an inch deep, forming an eight by 10 square. Uh, didn't blow him up in the way that was intended, but, you know, enough to kill him. Agent Wick said about the bomb, of the four keyholes, there were only two locks keeping the device locked around his neck. So if he would have recovered two of the keys, yes, he could have unlocked the device. But I don't believe he was ever going to find those keys. I believe he was meant to die that day. Investigators now wanted to determine if they would be able to complete the route described in the scavenger, uh, scavenger hunt in time. They chose the same day of the week, same time of day, same weather conditions, and drove the route and determined that there was no way in hell Brian could have finished that route in time, like not even close. Also, based on margins and indentations, investigators believed the notes were typed and then traced over to make matching handwriting uh, difficult. So whoever orchestrated this actually did think of a lot of shit to throw at investigators to throw them off their trail. 12 days later, September 20th, 2003, a man named William Rothstein calls 911 to report that there is a dude inside his garage freezer. And this body is connected to Brian's death. Shit is about to get real weird. Dispatcher, state police, what's your emergency? Rothstein, 
at 8645 Peach Street in the garage. There's a frozen body. It's in the freezer. There's a woman there you might want to pick up and question. 8645 Peach Street? Yes. How do you know that, sir? Trust me, I know. Who are you? I'm the guy who lives there. What is your name, sir? Bill Rothstein. And what is her name? Marjorie Deal. Marjorie Deal is at the residence now? Yes. Who is she to you, sir? Uh, I'll give you guys my story later on. And that's it. How mysterious. If I'm a detective, I just got real excited. It's like a real life game of fucking Clue now. I'm about, uh, you know, ready to make my guess and try and win. Who put the frozen body in the Rothstein house? Marjorie Deal. I just got to find out what weapon she used. State Trooper Ron Morgan received word about Bill Rothstein's call. He knew Bill fairly well. He was the best man at a family wedding. Bill informed him that the police needed to arrest Marjorie because she killed the man in the freezer and wanted him to put the body in either a wood chipper or a meat grinder, but he refused. Bill agreed to come to the station to speak with the police. The pizza and uh, bomber investigators were immediately on high alert now because Rothstein lived in very close proximity, very close uh, proximity to the TV tower where Wells was likely outfitted with the bomb that killed him. And they suspected the cases were related. Very next day, September 21st, 2003, 52-year-old Marjorie Deal Armstrong is arrested and charged with the murder of James Roden, the man inside the freezer. Frozen Roden was her boyfriend. His name works pretty well for that, by the way. Uh, The police believed he'd been killed about a month earlier in mid-August. The police alleged that Marjorie shot James at her house on East 7th Street in Erie, then assisted in moving the body a few miles away to Rothstein's home in Summit Township on Upper Peach Street. Rothstein told the police that initially he had tried... uh, agreed, excuse me, to help the body, get rid of a gun, and clean Marjorie Deal's apartment for $2,000 cash. He said that after James was killed, right before Roden got frozen, Marjorie and Bill cleaned and refurbished his apartment. Then Bill moved James's mattress and box springs, box springs to his garage and dumped almost everything out at a local landfill, including the flooring, headboard, headboard and footboard, and other items that were covered in blood. Bill made his last trip to the landfill on September 13, 2003, but this time he took 1,040 pounds of debris from his personal storage unit. The unit was filled with copper wiring, other items that were related to uh, two of his businesses, Redstone's Electric Company and Redstone's Handyman Services. And maybe some of the shit he took on that trip was stuff you could have used to, uh, I don't know, make an improvised explosive device with. When Bill was interviewed at length by the police on September 21st, he said he was once romantically involved with Marjorie and that they'd known each other for about 30 years. He said he had no knowledge of the murder until after it was committed. When asked how he learned about the murder, he said, she called me the night or morning that it happened. She came over to my house. She indicated that Jim was dead. I think she probably asked for help. And I know she went into histrionics, which is basically like she leaned back in the chair and said, nobody can help me. You're the only one who can help me or something like that. And, uh, you know, I didn't think, obviously, uh, I thought about it, but I didn't think the way I should have. I finally said I would take, I think I said I'd take a look or something like that. Bill said he agreed to help Marjorie because he felt sorry for her. And he'd helped her in the past, but never with murder. He said he wanted to get the body out of her house, but not destroy it. He planned to put it somewhere safe and then figure out what to do with it. This all sounds pretty weird. Uh, But then on the 20th, Marjorie told him that she wanted the body destroyed. And Bill told her, I'm not going to do this shit. I'm not going to go through with it. Bill then decided he would either choose to end his own life or turn Marjorie in. He started discussing his tactics to stall Marjorie, which included gathering a list of necessary supplies to destroy the body. One of these supplies was a meat grinder. Bill claimed he was just trying to bullshit Marjorie so he could buy some time. Trooper Lamont King was the investigator who took the lead on the frozen body investigation. Uh, He was the first one to enter the garage. He saw a large tarp hanging from the ceiling to the floor, which was hiding the freezer. He opened it up and saw a body, quote, wrapped like a side of beef. 
Trooper King recalled how he continued walking through the house and found Marjorie Deal Armstrong sitting on the bed, quote, ranting and raving because she wanted them to leave. Uh, well, no, they didn't. Uh, instead, arrested her. Marjorie uh, now said that Bill killed the man in the freezer and that she was innocent. Not a real credible claim since Bill killed the, uh, or you know, called the police when they had no idea he was connected to a guy that they didn't even know was dead, but that's what she said. And according to Deputy uh, Coroner Korak Timon, or Timon, the body was wrapped in a semi-fetal position and was completely frozen. The whole freezer was taken to the coroner's office. Frozen Roden's body was stuck to the side of the freezer and they had to thaw him the fuck out, which took four days and then perform the autopsy. I can't believe it took it that long. What a bummer they didn't have like a giant microwave, right? That would have been so handy. They could have just like thawed him out pretty quick. Uh, hey, Janice, uh, can you put James in the uh, in the microwave for about 50 more minutes? I know he feels hot to the touch, but I promise he is still frozen in the middle. Way too cold to eat. I mean, examine. Uh, the autopsy determined that James was killed with a shotgun blast about three weeks earlier. State troopers now transferred the case to the local police. Local police always, if you don't know, have investigative priority when people are frozen after being shot. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's not actually true. Uh, anyway, Bill Rothstein was uh, being held at the Penn State Police Barracks. Agent Jerry Clark wanted to interview him, but there was a confrontation over whether or not the FBI could speak to him because he was a witness in a state case against Marjorie Deal Armstrong. When Clark suggested there may be a connection between the Roden and Wells cases, he was then allowed to speak to Bill. When Clark introduced himself, Bill said, this is like his opening line. Bill said, quote, well, let me tell you something. I want you to know right off the top that I'm the smartest guy in this room. Okay, that is some weird shit to say to someone who is only talking to you because a dead, murdered body is, uh, you know, been found in your freezer. I mean, sure, he was the one who told authorities that, but still, that's a fucking weird way to set the tone of being questioned about a murder. Hey, before we get to jibber-jabbering about the dead body, I admitted to hiding in my freezer for a while for a friend. Let me make uh, one thing very clear. I'm the smartest guy in this fucking room. I doubt it, Bill. If Bill really was that smart, he probably would not have, uh, you know, agreed to hide a murder victim's body in his freezer in the first place. We're, we're going to learn so much more about Bill. He has an interesting background. Uh, Agent Clark asked Bill about the relationship between Brian Wells and James Roden. Bill claimed there was no relationship and then quickly refused to talk about the Wells case, acting a little suspicious for the smartest guy in the room. Uh, now that we've met some new characters in the story, let's backtrack a bit to discuss the lives of Bill and Marjorie. Definitely the most interesting characters in this story, by miles, in my opinion. William Ansel Rothstein, uh, he'd soon go by just Bill, born on January 17th, 1944. His parents were Matthias and B. Virginia Briner Rothstein. Uh, Bill's family ran the locally famous Rolla Bottling Plant in Erie, at that time uh, bottling a, a local soft drink called Rolla Cola. And the Rothsteins were a wealthy family. A lot of money, apparently, in a regional cola I've never heard of before this episode. Uh, there's a different Rolla Cola that was made in the UK from 1979 to 1999. The Erie version seems to have been the second most successful roll of cola. I can't, I can't figure out when Erie's roll of cola plant closed down. Most recent vintage roll of cola paraphernalia I can find on eBay comes from 1966. I know they last at least a couple years past that based on stuff coming up. Uh, well, the Rothsteins, they made their roll of cola moolah and then hopefully diversified to become wealthy, I guess. As a young adult, Bill took some college courses, but then dropped out to work in the family roll of cola business. Roll of cola is very fun to say, by the way. Roll of cola! Uh, Bill was a social butterfly. He participated in amateur radio and photography in the community theater, founded his own club called the Tall Club. In order to join the Tall Club, a man or a woman had to be at least 6'2", which was Bill's height. Feels like a way just to make sure that women and probably some short dudes he didn't care for couldn't be in his club. This group met for lunch and discussed world problems, getting the world's tallest minds together to try and end uh, world hunger and stuff. 
guy sounds like a fucking weirdo. Bill later led another group called the Fractured Intellectuals, which was himself and five to six friends who considered themselves geniuses, but maybe had some checkered past. They would meet uh, for pizza on Friday nights to talk about the news. Yeah, he's a huge weirdo. His comment about being the smartest guy in the room really tracks now. This guy thought a lot of himself. Now for Marjorie, the weirder of these two. Marjorie Eleanor Deal Armstrong, born February 26, 1949 in Erie. Her father was Harold Albert Deal and her mother was Agnes Eleanor Wolfenden Deal. Mm-hmm. I didn't even make that up. Agnes Eleanor Wolfenden. That's, that's a lot. Both her parents would live long, long lives, long enough to know who their daughter was, uh, you know, that she was wrapped up in all this shit. Harold was a retired salesman at the time of the murders who used to travel around Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York selling aluminum siding, awnings, and windows. Agnes was a retired elementary school teacher. Harold and Agnes got married August 22nd, 1942. Marjorie's life was once full of so much potential. She was a musical prodigy as a young kid and an exceptional student overall. She uh, graduated as valedictorian of her high school class and then went, then went on to earn a master's degree in education, you know, aced a bunch of her college classes. She was also gorgeous, a description which does factor into this case. Due to her combination of intellect, beauty, and a certain confident, funny charm, dudes apparently fell all over themselves trying to win her affection when she was a young woman. Uh, she had been a goofy kid. Her smarts had made her a social outcast when she was younger and didn't come into her looks until she was in her teens and then seemed to especially relish in the attention that she hadn't always gotten. And the way she treated men was seen by many around her as very manipulative. And she was also, by her mid-20s, mentally ill. She was diagnosed several times in her 20s and 30s, took different medications. One of her diagnoses was a bipolar disorder. Some of her symptoms included hoarding and an endless desire to talk. Also, this will make more sense going forward. I think there's a good chance she uh, exaggerated whatever mental illness symptoms she actually had in order to further manipulate others. When she needs to keep her shit together, it seems like she can. And when it's advantageous for others to think that she is batshit fucking crazy, she seems to be able to dial that way, way up. Perhaps. Uh, her father, Harold, before he passed away in 2013, said that he and Marjorie were close when she was young. They went fishing together whenever they could find time. And Agnes, his wife, doted on their daughter. When Marjorie later displayed uh, you know, symptoms of mental illness like hoarding, they were heart sick. Harold said they spoiled Marjorie, maybe too much. And when she became mentally ill, they gave her money because she couldn't hold down a job. They helped her buy two different houses and some additional land, but then she didn't take care of any of it. Finally, in the early 80s, they started to pull back the purse uh, purse strings. Harold stopped giving her money uh, when she got in trouble with the police. I'll go over her legal troubles he's referring to here in just a bit. They're pretty serious. Shortly before the pizza bomber murder, Marjorie believed that Harold and Agnes had saved up about a million dollars and that he had started giving it to his friends and neighbors. Uh, Her mom will die a couple years before the the pizza bomber heist. And she thought that, uh, you know, uh, they didn't want to give Marjorie money because or excuse me, though, they actually didn't want to give Marjorie money because in Harold's opinion, it was a tool to make her commit more crimes. Long before the death of Brian Wells, Marjorie was known for having all kinds of crazy plans and ideas. She once told a psychologist that she could put a spell on people and they would die. Most people who knew her found her to be either eccentric or, you know, just straight up crazy. How would you react if someone told you they could put a spell on people to kill them? Would you be like, bullshit, prove it? Or would you not do that because maybe a little tiny part of you might think, probably not, but why risk it? Uh, Marjorie met her best friend, Susan Robinson, in 1962. Susan described Marjorie as a magnetic person, but also very intense. Intense to the point that she uh, would need to go home and relax for a little while after spending time with Marjorie. 
And that's her best friend saying that. The person who liked her the most could only handle her, handle her in doses. According to Susan, Marjorie was really happy when she first met Bill Rothstein because she found someone older than her who she felt could relate to her on an intellectual level. So maybe Bill is, you know, pretty smart in some ways. Marjorie and Bill dated in the early 70s when she uh, was finishing school at Mercyhurst College and after he left the University of Toledo where he was studying electrical engineering. Bill moved, uh, moved back home to work for his family. Uh, as I kind of mentioned, one of uh, Marjorie's friends introduced her to Bill and they went roller skating on their first date. Pretty cute. Marjorie was 21. Bill was 26. At one point, Marjorie and Bill get engaged. They seem like a good match. They were both highly intelligent, uh, both described as very attractive people in their 20s. They even lived together with Bill's parents for a little while, but the engagement only lasted nine months. Marjorie said a few things about uh, why they didn't stay together. During one interview, she said she just couldn't get over the fact that Bill was Jewish. And I don't have uh, any information as to why that bothered her. And that might not be true because she said a variety of things. Margie talked about her relationship with Bill in a phone call from jail after her 2003 arrest and gave a different reason for them breaking up. She said, I was a virgin when I met him. He wanted to do perverted sex with me all the time when I was young and I didn't know anything. He's into oral or anal sex all the time. He wanted to like lick your legs, put his penis in your legs. He worships my legs. He's a pervert. (laughs) I like the legs detail. It's pretty weird. He, he wanted to stick his dick in my legs. No, thank you. That's not what, hello? That's not what legs are for. Uh, putting dicks in legs is pretty bad for him. So maybe they broke up because Bill wanted to fuck every nook and cranny of Marjorie's body and she wasn't into that. Yeah, they didn't match up uh, as far as sexual interests go. Happens all the time. Uh, Bill pleaded with her to get back together. Please let me fuck your legs, Marjorie. But the relationship just didn't work out. At least not romantically. Marjorie said later in a prison phone call that Bill blamed her for breaking off their engagement and never seriously dated or lived with another woman after she ended their engagement. Never got over her. Uh, Ray Borkowski, one of Bill's closest friends at the time of all the pizza bombing madness, described Bill as kind, generous, and helpful, a perfect friend, uh, thought Bill was very intelligent, also never liked Marjorie, thought she was nasty and controlling. He was worried about how Bill obsessed over her. Borkowski said in a documentary interview for Evil Genius, it was like somehow she got into his psyche and she just lived there. Both Marjorie and Bill would rack up some serious history of getting in uh, trouble with the law. Marjorie's criminal record started over 20 years before her boyfriend's body showed up in Bill's freezer back in April of 1980. This is a fucking weird thing to do. Marjorie was working at, uh, at an abortion clinic and she was accused of telling an undercover female officer that she was pregnant based on her urine sample. And she recommended that the officer pay at least 150 bucks for an abortion. But the urine sample actually came from a male officer. Uh, whoops. And Margie was charged with conspiracy and attempted theft by deception. That's a strange and fucked up way to try and make some extra money. To tell someone they're pregnant when they're not. That, that crime to me reeks of mental illness. I mean, since she wasn't a doctor, how was she going to talk a doctor into performing a procedure on a woman who didn't need it and then also profit off of that? Marjorie entered a program for first-time nonviolent offenders, got two years probation and 60 years of community service. Four years later, July 30th, 1984, Marjorie Deal's boyfriend at the time, Bob Thomas, is found dead on her living room couch. That same day, Marjorie took a bag with $18,000 in cash in it over to a friend's house. Uh, She said she cashed a social security check in the morning and the rest of the money came from a payment she received after a car accident. Mm -hmm. Then she offered her friend, who she had only known for one week, $25,000 to get rid of Bob Thomas's body. So the situation with Bill and Frozen Roden, that was the second time she had tried to get a guy to dispose or, you know, a guy not to get someone to dispose of uh, a body for her, right? The body of her boyfriend. Also, imagine someone you literally met the week before asking you if you'd get rid of a body for 25 grand. 
Yeah, let's grab dinner tomorrow. I can't wait. Oh, uh, one more thing. I know we just met, but uh, where do you stand on burying bodies for people? Marjorie wanted her friend to cut Thomas's body up with a fucking chainsaw, bury it, dump it off a pier, or burn it. Marjorie also offered that woman's sister money, a woman she really didn't know at all, to get rid of the body. These two women understandably creeped the fuck out, called her mom, and their mom called the police. Marjorie was arrested and charged with criminal homicide, possession of instruments of a crime, and possession of firearms without a license. And then her bond was revoked when authorities learned she had tried to arrange the death of two witnesses. So she kills one person, then tries to have those two sisters killed when they refused to help her hide the body of the first person she killed. Marjorie's trial would not start until 1988 because of her mental evaluations. Her defense team argued that she was not insane or unable to determine right from wrong, but she was too mentally incompetent and incapable of assisting in her own defense. So she would remain incompetent if she was, excuse me, and she would remain incompetent if she was not medicated for her bipolar disorder. She was finally found competent in February 1988 in order to stand trial. Marjorie's trial started in May. She admitted to shooting Bob Thomas with 38 caliber revolver six times, said she purchased the gun five days before the murder as a birthday present for him. She claimed that Thomas beat her and sexually abused her and that the night before the murder, they got into a huge argument because he accused her of being overly attracted to actor Richard Gere. Not making that up. And then he forced her to perform oral sex on him. <laughs> Based on all the shit she says later, I don't believe this happened at all. So weird. Admit it. Just fucking admit it. He's a very handsome man. Why do you always want to rent an officer and a gentleman every fucking time we go to Blockbuster? You want to leave me for Richard Gere? No? Well, prove it and suck my dick. Uh, she said Thomas cut her with a knife and that she shot him in self-defense. Then on June 2nd, 1988, Marjorie is acquitted of murder and the weapons charge, but convicted of carrying a gun without a license. Sentenced to 50 months probation. I think she totally got away with one here. Her defense attorney, uh, Leonard Ambrose, described representing Marjorie later as punishment on earth. Uh, kind of weird phrasing, maybe like hell on earth, combining with being punished. Uh, he said in the Evil Genius docuseries, she should have been confined. She was sick. She was disturbed. And anybody that was around her knew that. Sounds like, although he didn't outright say, you know, that her own defense attorney thought she got away with murder. Uh, did she lie about being sexually abused to gain sympathy from the jury? A lot of people seem to think so. I, th- I think so. In the early 90s, Marjorie was married to a man named Richard Armstrong. Second dick, including gear, if you're tracking that this week. Uh, this dick died of a brain hemorrhage on August 24th, 1992, right before their two-year anniversary. Well, Marjorie had married uh, Richard directly after accusing him of threatening to kill her. He entered a plea bargain for this charge and was sentenced to one month in prison in January 1991, and then they got married on January 23rd. Huh. Uh, Marjorie filed a wrongful death suit against the hospital and actually won $175,000 in a settlement in 1998. So smart enough to pursue that. Stable enough to pursue that in court. Uh, Bill Rothstein had his own criminal experience in February of 1977. His friend, Louis Alessi, told him that he had just killed someone. And what the fuck? Marjorie, the second friend of his who came to him after killing somebody. Such a weird pairing there, right? Like this is the second time she's gone to someone to have, you know, to plead to get them to try and like hide a body for her. And on his side, it's the second time someone has come to ask him to help fucking get rid of a body. Ah, I do not have friends as interesting as these people. Uh, Bill later said that he tried to burn the murder weapon, but instead put it in a plastic bag and threw it away. He kept that quiet until 1979 when he testified for the prosecution, got his friend convicted of murdering his former ex-boyfriend, and then Rothstein uh, received immunity in exchange for his testimony. Uh, Rothstein was also involved in a family feud before the bank heist. Bill had been living rent-free at his childhood home on Peach Street ever since his parents died. 
His brother and sister wanted to sell the house, but as the executor of the estate, Bill didn't want to move. He wanted a free ride. He told his siblings he uh, put the house on the market for $90,000, but he actually listed it for $250,000, way above what it was worth, according to uh, agent Jason Wick. A real estate agent advised that this was you know, way too high, but Bill was insistent on that exact number. Agent Wick did not think it was a coincidence that the robbery note demanded that same amount. So for some reason, Bill really wanted a uh, quarter of a million dollars in cash. Now let's shift focus back to James Roden's uh, murder investigation. Investigators quickly learned that Bill had a roommate named Floyd Arthur Stockton Jr. and that Stockton moved out of the house just a day after the bank heist. The FBI didn't find out about Stockton until Marjorie told them about him. Marjorie told him that Stockton was living with Rothstein because he was on the run from the law. He was wanted for a rape charge in Washington. There's so many fucking shady characters wrapped up in all of this. Floyd, also known as Jay, was uh, now arrested on a fugitive from justice charge on the evening of September 21st. Uh, Stockton was born in Jamestown, New York, near the Pennsylvania border, grew up in Erie, spent most of his life incarcerated or moving around. As a teen, Stockton was jailed for stealing a car. First, uh, he met Bill when he got out of prison back in 1968. Stockton stopped at the Rolla-Cola Bottling Company to buy some beer, and uh, Bill was working the register that day. Stockton was three years older than Bill, but born on the same day. Two men became fast friends, went to concerts together, would hang out at the bottling company. Stockton worked for Rolla-Cola during the day, played guitar in some local bands at night. Bill uh, said he tried to give his buddy or keep his buddy out of trouble. Stockton spent time in prison on some marijuana charges in the 70s and then moved west when he got out uh, from those sentences. He moved to Montana in 1980 and a few years later was sentenced to 10 years in prison for a 1983 rape conviction. When he was released for that conviction, he moved to Bellingham, Washington, lived there with a woman and her family. One of his girlfriend's kids was a 19-year-old girl with a serious mental disability. And in May of 2002, Stockton was charged with raping her. By the time the police were looking for him, he was already on the run. So now I'll jump back into the timeline. All these characters keep showing up. September 24, 2003, the police and federal agents questioned Bill about the Brian Wells case. He told them he might have used the payphone. That was the source of the phone call made to the pizza shop. Hard to say. Maybe he called Brian right before someone, who knows who, put a bomb around his neck. Or maybe not. Maybe he's playing solitaire at home when that happened or beaten off while fantasizing about fucking Marjorie's ankles or the backs of her knees or her thigh gap or something. Bill came in for a polygraph with the FBI and passed, but Agent Clark didn't trust results. He felt Bill was smart enough to beat a polygraph. And we now know that those things are, you know, very unreliable. Rothstein was free on bail because he was cooperating with investigators. He took them on a tour of both his and Marjorie's homes. Investigators found a suicide note Bill had written out at his house that said, police, one, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Two, the body in the freezer in the garage is Jim Roden. I do think it's interesting. He does the one parenthetical and two parenthetical, just like the notes written earlier uh, related to the pizza bombing. Three, I did not kill him nor participate in his death. Four, my apologies to those who cared for or about me. I am sorry that I let them down. Five, I am sorry to leave you this mess. Bill Rothstein. Uh, Despite this very suspicious note, the FBI initially clears both Floyd and Rothstein, but the state police and local police do not. They believe from the beginning that they, uh, these two guys are involved in the Brian Wells pizza bomber heist. January 20th, 2004, Marjorie is ordered to stand trial for homicide, aggravated assault, tampering with evidence, abuse of a corpse, and other charges stemming from the death of Frozen Roden. Rothstein testified at the preliminary hearing that Marjorie shot James over an argument about money. Rothstein accepted a plea deal for a few years in prison on a charge of abuse of a corpse. He was allowed to stay out on bail until his sentencing. 
Marjorie made a shocking statement after the hearing when asked what she had to say about Bill Rothstein. She said Rothstein should be charged for the murder of Brian Wells and a lot of other charges. He had a fugitive from justice, a rapist that I turned into the FBI in his house for two years. All right, so she's going down and wants to bring him down too. In March of 2004, seven months after Brian's murder, Marjorie Deal Armstrong is transferred from the Erie County Prison to Mayview State Hospital for long-term psychiatric evaluation. Investigators now not allowed to talk to her because of her mental state. Four months later, July 30th, 2004, 60-year-old Bill Rothstein dies of cancer. He had said nothing about the Brian's Wells case when investigators questioned him in his final days. Uh, seemed like Bill was hiding his sickness as long as possible until he was hospitalized. He knew he had cancer when Brian robbed the bank. In August, it was announced that Marjorie would soon be released from the uh, state mental hospital. She was scheduled for a competency hearing September 8th. Marjorie uh, was uh, once again ordered to stand trial on September 9th, 2004, after that hearing. On January 7th, 2005, Marjorie pleads guilty but mentally ill to third-degree murder and abuse of a corpse in the death of James Roden. And she is sentenced to seven to 20 years in prison. Marjorie admitted to her cellmates that she shot James because of a fight about another woman. So she might have gotten away with killing a guy in 1984, but 20 years later, not so lucky. But still gets a reduced sentence thanks to her mental illness. And again, every time she's like really seriously questioned or whatever, it seems to flare up. Uh, she told the judge in court, I'm not going to be any more trouble, Your Honor. I've learned my lesson. If I get another chance at life, I'm not going to lose it. You know, some people are slow learners, Your Honor. Some people know right away that you shouldn't kill your boyfriend or husband. You know, others have to learn from their mistakes. After killing two guys I was with, now I get it. I get it. I get it. No more killing partners for this cowgirl. Ha <laughs> ha. No, sir. Pinky swear. Uh, Marjorie was first sent to the Mayview State Hospital for treatment. She would be transferred to prison if doctors determined she no longer needed care. And now let's meet Trey Abozarelli, future narrator, co-creator of the Evil Genius docuseries. Uh, the man who had been obsessed with the collar bomb case from the very beginning. Uh, Borzarelli decided to write to Marjorie back in 2005. Uh, he received a response uh, a week after his first letter. She said she was very familiar with the Wells case and promised to reveal secrets if he gave her legal help or money. Okay. Bazzarelli and Marjorie will communicate via letters, two giant boxes full of letters and phone calls for uh, about 10 years. Will he solve Brian's case? On March 16th, 2005, almost 19 months after Brian Wells' murder, Marjorie is transferred from the state hospital to the state correctional institution at Muncie. Bozzarelli, or Borzarelli, there we go, Borzarelli arranged an interview with Marjorie as part of their deal. She would tell him about the bank heist if he now got her an attorney. In this interview, she admits to shooting and killing James Roden. She said she shot James because he threatened to kill her, which he'd allegedly been doing for more than 10 years. She said she couldn't take it anymore. Also said it had nothing to do with Brian Wells. But the court found her guilty of lying about that. She was convicted because she admitted to killing him over for other reasons, right? Excuse me. Marjorie explained that James' body was kept in the freezer because Bill said he couldn't take James out until he finished, quote, a business project, which she thought, you know, reflecting later was the bank heist. Marjorie was vague about the pizza bomber case in, their, uh, in, in her first face-to-face -face meeting with Borzarelli. She specifically said, I know Bill Rothstein's involved in it and implied there was someone else involved who was closely following the case, but wouldn't say how she knew this information. State Trooper David Gluth hears about all this and alerts the FBI that Marjorie potentially has info about Brian Wells. Back in 2003, the state police had moved Marjorie's belongings into storage. Now they turned her unit over to the FBI. And inside, investigators find a letter from Marjorie to the PNC Bank, same branch that Brian robbed. She was furious because a manager allowed her father to empty a family safety deposit box with some of her valuable uh, property supposedly also inside. Uh, let's meet Marjorie's friend, Kenneth E. Barnes now, 
another odd character in this story. Barnes had been Marjorie's fishing buddy for nine years before the pizza bomber uh, situation. She was introduced to Ken by her boyfriend, James Roden. Barnes was a TV repairman <laughs> and a drug dealer, mostly coke, but a little bit of crack. I love that he, he'll repair your TV and maybe sell you a little bit of crack. Why not? Let's bring a little bit of crack in this batshit uh, crazy story. Uh, Kenneth Barnes revealed in a police interview that James Roden was like a little puppet and did whatever Marjorie wanted him to do. He said the two fought all the time, sometimes physically, and that Marjorie had threatened to kill him on, a, on numerous occasions before she did kill him. Marjorie, such a troubled person who seems incapable of having a stable relationship, uh, she'd actually filed a criminal complaint accusing Kenneth of breaking into her house on May 30th, 2003 and stealing $2,300. He was not charged. Barnes was renovating her house with Roden at the time. Marjorie described Barnes as not just a Coke dealer, but also a pimp. So TV repairman, uh, dealer, and pimp. She also kept changing her story about him. At one point, she accused Kenneth and, uh, and a biker, some random biker, of stealing over $100,000 from her. Marjorie didn't trust banks and did keep a lot of cash in her house. How much, no one knows. When she was accused of being involved in the bank heist, she did say she didn't need to rob a bank uh, because she had so much money from her inheritance, various lawsuits, and government aid. And that is a pretty pathetic flex. Pfft, I don't need that bank's money. I've been grifting from my dad and the government for years. I also figured out how to manipulate the court system. I have a lot of other people's money already. Did I work for literally any of it? No, fuck no. Uh, should her being mentally ill give her a pass for also being a real piece of shit? I don't think so. Um, both April 20th and May 23rd, 2005, FBI agent Jerry Clark, ATF agent Jason Wick, pretty good at dodgeball, interviewed Marjorie about Brian Wells. She said uh, she would talk about the Wells case if they could move her closer to Erie. How mentally ill is she? Is she like a little mentally ill and also smart enough to know how to manipulate psychologists and psychiatrists into thinking she's more mentally ill than she is? She just seems so incredibly manipulative constantly. According to Agent Wick, not that you can't be manipulative and, you know, not that that makes you not mentally ill, but according to Agent Wick, Marjorie started off the interviews by yelling at them. All right, maybe she's a little fucking crazy. Uh, Agent Clark butted her up with compliments, which calmed her down, and then she was willing to talk. The FBI did arrange for a transfer, hoping she'd provide new information, but all she did was continue to implicate Bill Rostin in the Wells case rather than provide something new and useful, something detailed. Eventually, Marjorie uh, told her friend Trey Borzarelli about a blue van that Bill once kept at his house. She thought it was suspicious that Bill had it towed after the heist and didn't have a return to his house until he was cleared as a suspect. She thought Bill might have been driving that van on, oh, I don't know, August 28th, 2003. Borzarelli now remembered that he did see a blue van in Rothstein's driveway when he tried to interview him for his documentary. So now he shows the footage of the van to Trooper Lamont King, who was mentioned earlier, also saw a van, a van leaving the last scavenger site location on August 28th. King looks at this video and says, there is no doubt in my mind. That's the van I saw that day. So hot damn. Finally, a break in the case over a year and a half in. And a guy making a true crime doc provided it. Investigators now decided to start over and reread every report made by every investigator involved in the Brian Wells case. While reviewing the walkthrough video of Rothstein's garage, ATF agent Wick sees a piece of paper with a drawing that includes an arrow with a turn. When he looks at photos of the bomb collar, he realizes it has a very similar looking arrow drawn on it. Borzarelli, meanwhile, speaks with Rothstein's old friend, Ray Borkowski. He looks at the instructions written to Brian Wells, as well as indented writing found on the back of one of the notes. And Ray says it was Bill's handwriting, quote, without a doubt. Also, remember how fucking smart Bill thought he was, right? The smartest guy in the room, the leader of the fractured intellectuals. He was an arrogant dude, and those notes had an arrogant tone to them. The tone of someone who thinks they are a real mastermind. All the pieces fit, 
and point to Bill. On July 5th, 2005, Clark and Wick interview Marjorie again at the state prison. Marjorie now says that she killed James Roden to keep him from fucking talking about the Brian Wells bank robbery plot. She said she never gave details about his murder before because she was worried it would implicate her in Brian's case. Why is she admitting this now? I don't know. I really don't. I think because she thought she was going to get a deal. Marjorie also said that she gave Rothstein some kitchen timers in the summer of 2003, which just happened to be some of the main components of the collar bomb. Finally, she admitted to being just a quarter mile from the bank when Brian was killed. She did bring up immunity during her interview, but never actually got an official deal. So she fucked up. Uh, And then when she didn't get a deal, she disputed the FBI's account of her statements later. But it was too late. Those statements are already on the record. According to State Trooper David Gluth, the FBI now speaks to four different women in prison who all claim that Marjorie said she killed James because he was going to reveal bank heist plans. Inmate Kella, uh, Kelly Michaela even kept several pages of notes with info about the bank heist and the murder of James Roden. Kelly had asked the police to give her notes to the FBI, uh, but they ended up instead in a file labeled snitch letters. Well, now the FBI examines them. Michaela's notes stated that Rothstein built the collar bomb, Floyd Stockton was involved, and that the heist was linked to the James Roden case. Marjorie also said, per these notes, it's not like we didn't measure his neck for the collar. In the summer of 2005, more evidence shows up and it makes national news. A man named Tom Sedgwick, or Sedgwick, claimed that on August 28, 2003, he was driving down I-79 near the PNC Bank when he saw from about a half mile away a gold car driving head-on towards him on the wrong side of the freeway. The driver was a woman with unusual eyes, which turned out to belong to Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Tom called the FBI's hotline to report this info on September 5th, 2003, but the tip never got passed up the chain at that time. Erie DA Brad Folk now calls the FBI to ask if they've heard of this witness. They had not, so Jerry Clark went to interview him. Clark reported that Marjorie admitted to being on the highway, but denied driving down the wrong side of the road and said she wasn't on the highway for any reason related to the Wells case. This summer, America's Most Wanted airs information about the case, hoping to get more leads and it works. Michael Thomas Vogt, a UPS driver, calls the FBI after watching the program to report that he saw Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Bill Rothstein together at the Shell Station payphone August 28th. Vogt said he was driving past the gas station when he saw a large man standing at the payphone wearing bib overalls, which was a look that Rothstein rocked a lot. He saw Marjorie standing there too, and they even made eye contact. And she does not have a face that you would forget. I don't even know how to describe why that is, but she just does not look like anyone else I have ever seen. There's a certain intensity about her look. It's very memorable. Marjorie admits now to being at the Shell Station, but not because she was participating in the call to Brian Wells. She was just, you know, hanging around at the gas station at the time somebody called Brian to deliver his last pizza, a delivery that ended up with him having a bomb locked around his neck and being given bank robbing instructions. It's probably just a coincidence. Gosh. Next, on July 19th and 20th, 2005, agents Clark and Wick interview Bill Rothstein's old roommate, Floyd Stockton Jr., currently incarcerated on a rape charge. They tell him if he will give them the information they want, they'll drop the rape charge. And to sweeten the pot, they'll give him an official FBI rape punch card good for five free rapes he'll never be charged for. No, of course not. Can you fucking imagine how outrageous that would be? (laughs) Okay, okay, so we fucked up. We shouldn't have given him the punch card. We were just desperate to solve this case. It's been taking forever. And we knew that would get him talking. Okay, sorry. Uh, During this interview, they learn even more about the case. Stockton claims that William and Marjorie were involved in the collar bomb plot because they needed money. Uh, Agent Wick believes him, but also feels like Stockton is holding something else back. He won't tell them any real detailed information about the pizza bomber case. They wonder if he's doing that because he's worried about implicating himself. August 11th, 18th, and September 13th, 2005, Agents Clark and Wick interview Marjorie's friend, Kenneth Barnes, some more. 
Barnes said that before Brian Wells was killed, Marjorie solicited him to kill her father to prevent him from spending any more of her inheritance. I can see her doing this for sure. When Barnes was asked if he knew Brian Wells, he said he didn't know him, but he heard about his death. The day after the bombing, he was having sex with a sex worker who brought up Brian's name. That woman was a Jessica Hoopsick, and her name was found in the notebook that Brian kept in his house. Jerry Clark, Ed uh, Palatella, uh, another FBI agent, wrote in their, or, no, I'm sorry, a co-author uh, with Jerry Clark, uh, wrote in their book about this case. With that bit of information, Barnes had turned into the critical link in the Wells case. Deal Armstrong knew Rothstein and Barnes, and Barnes knew Wells through Hoopsick. Barnes connected Wells to Deal Armstrong and Rothstein. So hail Nimrod, looking like they're actually going to figure this shit out. Uh, Kenneth Barnes tells him that he rented out rooms to in his house to sex workers and their clients in exchange for drugs and money. And Brian used to stop by often. Brian Wells had been having sex with Jessica Hoopsick about two times a month for about five years. According to Agent Jerry Clark, Brian Wells had often driven Jessica to Ken Barnes' house where she was staying. They would consummate uh, their sexual transaction on the second floor of Mr. Barnes' residence. Brian paid Jessica, then she bought crack from Ken. (laughs) Clark said all three were very happy with the deal, and it worked out for everybody. (laughs) Investigators now located uh, Jessica Hoopsick, but she said she didn't know anything and refused to answer their questions. But they'll talk to her again later, and she will, uh, you know, fill in some gaps for us. Investigators also searched Ken Barnes' house. There was nothing linking Ken to the collar bomb specifically, but Barnes did have a lot of magazines about building electronics that could be used in an explosive device. And those are pretty fucking weird magazines to have. And fairly incriminating, considering what they're investigating. Uh, Barnes claimed he was not involved in the heist, but elaborated on Marjorie's motive for it. In his second interview, he said Marjorie solicited Brian Wells to commit the bank robbery and kill her father, and solicited him to kill her father because um, she wanted her inheritance. And the sooner the better, right? Marjorie wanted Ken to be the hitman. She wanted to rob a bank to get enough money to pay Ken to kill her dad. This is how convoluted this plan is. Ken claimed he wasn't going to do it. He was a drug dealer, not a hitman. Uh, this information he's giving now, not actually new, back in 2003 during the James Frozen Road investigation. Ken reported that Marjorie wanted to hire him as a hitman, but that information was not passed along to the FBI. So, so much information getting lost in the multiple agency shuffle here, and it's all very confusing. According to Ken Barnes' statements in the original interview, Marjorie asked him if he would kill her dad. He said he was just joking with her, told her it would cost her a quarter of a million dollars. Again, he said he was just playing around uh, when he said he wanted, you know, half up front. He told investigators he would never kill anyone, just wanted to see if Marjorie was stupid enough to give him that money. <laughs> if he's not bullshitting here, this obviously seriously implicates Marjorie and Brian Wells' death. This guy tells her he'll kill her dad for $250,000. Then right after that, Brian is pressured to rob a bank for that exact amount. Just before he robs it, Marjorie is spotted at the exact payphone used to call the police uh, or used to call the pizza place to lure Brian out for his final delivery. The guy she was spotted with at the payphone is a longtime friend, former fiance. His van then spotted at the scavenger hunt stop Brian was trying to get to when he was blown the fuck up. And it was this guy's handwriting on the notes found in Brian's car, a guy who had the body of Marjorie's dead boyfriend in his fucking freezer, a guy she went to prison for murdering, and she murdered him because he was going to rat out her bank robbery plot according to numerous witnesses. Sure fucking seems like Marjorie orchestrated the pizza bombing with the help of Bill Rostein, old flame, obsessed with her until he died. And she did that to try and pay someone $250,000 to kill her dad so she could get the rest of his inheritance. Her mama died in 2000. Only her dad would need to die to get that money. What a fucking crazy situation. December 9th, 12th, 14th, uh, 2005 now, Kenneth Barnes meets more with agents uh, 
Clark and Wick reveals critical information about the bank heist. Kenneth said in his confession that on August 27, 2003, the conspirators had a meeting to this the night before the robbery. They had a meeting to Bill's house to talk about the robbery. At this meeting is Rostein, Marjorie, uh, himself, Floyd Stockton, Robert Panetti, and Brian Wells. And Panetti, if you forgot, is Brian's coworker at the pizza place. So many names to keep track of, right? Panetti was the guy who overdosed just a few days after Brian's death, right before he was to be questioned by the FBI. Trey Borzarelli talks with Kenneth further, records the conversation, and Kenneth's story is the same as the one he told the FBI. Kenneth said he was on the lookout. Marjorie came to his house shortly before noon on August 28th, or he was the lookout for the robbery. Uh, Marjorie came to his house shortly before noon, August 28th. According to Ken's statement, Marjorie told him today's the day. He asked where James, a.k.a. Jim, was because he was supposed to drive the getaway car. Marjorie said Jim was in bed and she thought he was sick with the flu. Well, he was, of course, dead and in Bill's freezer at this time. Now they go to the Shell station where Bill makes a call to the pizzeria. Afterwards, they go to Bill's house, then to the big signal tower to wait for Brian. Brian gets out of his car, puts the pizza on the trunk of Rothstein's car. Marjorie, Ken, and Bill eat some of the pizza while Brian waits to be paid. Floyd brings the bomb out from the back of the building at the tower site. He gets within three feet of Brian, who looks terrified. Brian panics, starts to run. Ken runs up to him, says, quipping such a puss, hits him. Rothstein then pulls out a gun, shoots it into the air, tells Brian he's not going fucking anywhere. Marjorie helps Rothstein now grab Brian and Marjorie and Stockton put the bomb on him while Brian is shouting, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Ken didn't know if Brian thought the bomb was real or fake. Uh, Marjorie now puts the shirt on Brian to cover up the bomb. Someone gives Brian the notes and Marjorie tells Brian, if you happen to get caught, tell them some black guys held you down, put the bomb on you. That way it won't bring any heat back to us. They give him the cane gun, tell him to use it if he has any trouble. They now go to the parking lot of a place called Eaton Park, which was across the street and over the hill from the bank. And from there, Marjorie and Ken actually watch the bank robbery through binoculars. They leave when the police arrive on the scene and drive down Peach Street to Bill's house. They swap vehicles with him. Marjorie gets back on I-79, drives on the wrong fucking side of the road. Authorities believe she was driving to the McKeon Township sign to look for the last site on the map. Kenneth said that when he saw Brian's death on TV, he felt bad because the bomb was supposed to be fake. He told Borzarelli, as far as I knew, or he knew, or anybody else knew, it wasn't supposed to be real. But between Marge and Rothstein, they ended up making it real. After Ken confessed, the authorities headed to Washington State, now to talk to Floyd Stockton. Stockton's attorneys get him an immunity deal in exchange for testifying against Marjorie. February 10th, 2006, agents Wick and Clark meet with Marjorie yet again. She denies being with Barnes on August 27th and 28th, says Rothstein framed her. February 14th, 2006, agents meet with Kenneth Barnes again. He's upset when he hears that Marjorie denied her role in the robbery and called her a liar. Marjorie Dill Armstrong speaks to agents Wick and Clark eight times on May 10th, 2006, at the advice of her lawyer, Lawrence D'Ambrosio. She went on a, a drive with agents through Summit Township and identified where she was August 28th, 2003. Marjorie said that Bill Rothstein asked her for two kitchen timers, but then she ended the interview. As mentioned previously, these were components of the bomb. The media had not released this information, so only investigators and conspirators would know about it. Marjorie now says she's done talking. Floyd Stockton confesses March 27, 2007. He mentions that per Bill's request, he tried to take a couple pieces for the collar or tried to make a couple pieces, but he couldn't do it right, so then Bill took over. Stockton did a reenactment of the scene with the police. He said Marjorie was present, and Rothstein ordered him to put the bomb around Brian's neck. After he put the collar on Brian, he left the tower area, said he started running a zigzag pattern away because he thought they were going to shoot him. He told investigators, you know what? I'm a convicted child abuser. I could get shot back here and no one would even care. 
What a mad plan all these maniacs were putting together. Uh, both Stockton and Barnes said that they didn't know who built the bomb or who, who built the cane gun or who wrote the notes or who was the actual mastermind of the whole operation. They also couldn't give details about Robert Panetti's involvement. They both said Brian was involved in the heist but didn't know exactly how or when he was recruited. Uh, someone else will eventually provide those details out. July 9, 2007, a federal grand jury that had been meeting for the past two years now indicts Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Kenneth Barnes for bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence. Barnes was serving 23 months in prison at the time for a drug offense. Brian Wells and William Rothstein, both dead, of course, are named as unindicted co-conspirators. Floyd Stockton not named in indictments because of his immunity deal. On July 11, 2007, the indictments are unsealed. U.S. Attorney Mary Beth Buchanan announces the indictments against Marjorie and Kenneth for the roles in the collar bomb case, also discusses what investigators knew about Brian's role in the heist. Buchanan said at the press conference, we're not exactly sure how much Wells knew. We know he was involved in a limited extent with the planning of this. Brian's family glared at her, shouted liar during the press conference. I mean, you know, fair enough. They don't want to believe he was a conspirator. They only want to see him as a victim. According to an indictment, Marjorie and Kenneth made a plan to make it look like Brian was merely, merely a hostage. So he would have an alibi if he was arrested. But if he was killed by the bomb, even better, because now he couldn't become a witness against them. Buchanan said at the press conference, it may be that his role transitioned from that of the planning stages to being an unwilling participant in the scheme. Information was leaked to the press at this time that Marjorie had solicited Kenneth to help rob a different bank in July of 2003. They never made it out of the planning stages for that one. But a month before that robbery, though, she allegedly asked Kenneth how to build a pipe bomb. It was now revealed that Marjorie... uh, was under the mistaken impression her father was wealthy uh, for all this and that he was giving away her substantial inheritance. The Cleveland Plain dealer reported that Harold and Agnes Deal's estate was once worth $500,000, but it had dwindled. Marjorie's father told the paper, she wouldn't kill me, but she probably would get someone else to do it. She tends to be greedy. That's her dad talking. How sad to have a kid you know, uh, you know, is 100% capable of having you killed if that means that they got, got your money. Also, how fucking stupid is this whole plan? Marjorie involved a whole cast of miscreants to help her get $250,000. And if she would have gotten that, she would have used it to pay Ken Barnes to kill her dad and then quite possibly received much less than $250,000 because her dad wasn't worth that much money anymore. Lastly, the indictment alleged that Marjorie supplied the two timers using the color bomb, which, you know, has already been mentioned in interviews. The FBI now firmly believes Rothstein was the mastermind of the heist and likely the person who also made the bomb and that he made it at the request of Marjorie for her dumb fucking inheritance plan. The authorities allege that Brian Wells mentally rehearsed his role in the plan and sat for fittings of the collar bomb under the impression it wouldn't actually be a real bomb that would kill him. According to the FBI affidavit, Kenneth Barnes said that Brian was discussing the robbery about a month in advance, which was corroborated by another witness. A witness driving past Rothstein's house on August 27th, the night before Brian dies, saw Brian pulling out of the driveway, and they had to slam on their brakes to avoid hitting him which supports the claim, you know, that he was at the meeting with Rothstein, Marjorie, and others before the robbery. Also, according to the indictment, Bill Rothstein was standing in the parking lot next to the bank waiting to get the money from Brian. But as Brian walked out, a customer followed him because they thought he was acting suspicious and Bill panicked and drove home where Marjorie was waiting for him. And that is how they were supposed to get the fucking money. Finally, it makes sense. Brian was supposed to hand over the cash to Bill on his way out of the bank and then go on his scavenger hunt to keep himself from getting blown up you know, with Bill knowing that was never going to happen, but Bill fucks that up. So when Bill returns to Marjorie, she is furious that he's empty-handed. And she thinks that he was given the $250,000 and he's hiding it from her. 
So she gets into Bill's car in a panic and drives towards the bank to find it. And at one point veers off the highway looking for, you know, uh, looking near the median and witnesses, you know, saw her driving recklessly that day. So that is how she ends up on the wrong side of the freeway. She flipped out because she thinks that Bill stole her money. Store clerks also reported that Rothstein and the collaborators purchased several items that were used for the bomb in the weeks leading up to the robbery. Finally, the indictment states that James Frozen Roden uh, was killed on August 11th, 2003. According to authorities, Roden was a key member and worked closely with Deal Armstrong and Rothstein planning the robbery before his death, but then something went awry, right? Were they, were they originally supposed to all share in Marjorie's inheritance? How ridiculous. If they would have gotten the $250,000, then used it to pay Ken Bars to kill Harold, then gotten like, 100 or 150k from uh you know the inheritance then split it up amongst marjorie james roden bill rostein maybe robert panetti maybe floyd j stockton too how did any of them ever think this was going to work out i feel like they were all smoking a lot of crack while they were putting this all together uh july 29 2008 u.s district judge sean j mclaughlin declares marjorie deal armstrong incompetent for trial due to her mental illness for fuck's sake her mental illness once again conveniently shows up Consistently flares up whenever she's on trial for murder. And this is her third fucking murder trial now. Every time uh, the trial gets delayed because of her malingering bullshit, which I'm speculating on, by the way, just annoying. Seems so manipulative and I hate people this manipulative. Uh, She was committed to a federal mental health facility. Officials were asked to report to the judge in four months to let him know if she had improved enough to move forward with the case. Just just throw her in a cell forever already. She's a piece of shit. September 3rd, 2008, Kenneth Barnes pleads guilty to conspiracy to commit bank robbery and using a destructive device during a crime of violence. His attorney, James Mead, said Kenneth was a very minor player in the heist. December 3rd, 2008, Kenneth Barnes is sentenced to 45 years in federal prison. After Ken Barnes' sentencing, prosecutors re-emphasized that Brian Wells was involved in planning the robbery, but he no longer wanted to participate when he realized the bomb was real and he was then forced to wear it. September 8th, 2009, Judge McLaughlin finds Marjorie competent to stand trial. Finally, six months later, In March 2010, Marjorie has a cancerous lump removed from her neck and is diagnosed with glandular cancer. August 12, 2010, Judge McLaughlin reviews a physician's report that states Marjorie has just three to seven years to live. Assistant U.S. Attorney Marshall Pisanini announced that he still planned to take her to trial, though. Fucking good. Thank God. Let's get some closure on all this. It's been seven years since Brian's death now. Jury selection for Marjorie Deal Armstrong's trial starts October 12, 2010. Floyd Stockton, unfortunately, has two strokes just before he was to testify at this trial. He's uh, discharged on the day jury selection starts. His doctors rule he is uh, not able to travel from Washington to Pennsylvania. October 15th, 2010, Marjorie's trial officially starts in Erie. Witnesses who saw Marjorie at different locations in the heist testify. Uh, Inmates who heard her confessions in jail testify. One inmate testified that Marjorie said all the conspirators were afraid of the death penalty and they were going to watch each other's backs. Jessica Hoopsick, remember her? sex worker who had a uh, regular paid dates with Brian for years. She testified that one night she was on Kenneth Barnes porch and heard a conversation about a bank robbery. A woman was present, but she didn't know who Marjorie also testified at her trial. Uh, Jerry Clark and Ed Palatella uh, wrote about her testimony. Marjorie deal Armstrong launched into a verbal reverie that lasted some five hours and 20 minutes over the one and a half days. She was on the witness stand. She then spoke nonstop about all the houses she once owned, all the fur coats that once lined her closets, and all the jewelry she had once collected, all the things she had once inherited. Uh, That must have been uh, pretty entertaining to listen to. She said she was raised in a wealthy family and that her father sexually abused her as a child and as an adolescent. And did that happen? 
To me, that seems like some Casey Anthony bullshit. Daddy won't keep giving her money. Now she might not get out of prison ever if she can't throw someone under the bus, so she tosses dad under the tires. I mean, terrible if he did do that to her, obviously. But this never came up before during any trials, interviews, nothing. Feels super manipulative and convenient. Yes, it still could have happened, but with her, I don't buy it. Marjorie testified, I never met Brian Wells and I never knew Brian Wells. She said she was with Rothstein daily in August and September of 2003 because James Roden uh, had, <laughs> because of James Roden, excuse me, and because Rothstein had $78,000 that belonged to her. That's a, a new thing she's never mentioned before. She said she had to wait for Rothstein to finish up his, quote, business project to clean the crime scene in her house. She said that Rothstein asked her to meet him at the Shell station at 1.30 p.m. on August 28th and that Kenneth Barnes was there. Bill said she had to put up with him being there because he was part of the business project. I love how she keeps referring to this business project. Like anyone fucking talks like like that. And and if they did, like you wouldn't figure out what the project was. It's just like, like, like a terrible script. Hey, Marjorie, can you head over to the Shell station with me? I have to make a payphone call for my business project. What is your business project, Bill? It is a business project uh, that would be best for me to keep private, Marjorie. Okay, Bill, I will accompany you to the Shell station and not ask questions about your business project. Your business project is none of my business. Therefore, I will not ask further questions. (laughs) Reminds me of the, uh, the Menendez brothers. Oh, they're fucking business talk. Do you like making money? If you do, you should call Menendez Investment Enterprises. Just dial 1-800-BUSINESS to do so much business for your business projects. Profit, interest, return on investments, wealth building business. Call 1-800-BUSINESS for your business project. Make profit for your business project. Revenue, expense accounts, business, business, call what eight. Hundred business if you like business projects one in front eight hundred after that business money roller cola stock market business pizza bomb business killing dad business freezing people business biz you get it. Anyway, back to Marjorie's bullshit testimony. She said Rothstein made a call on the payphone, and when Marjorie said she wanted lunch, Bill said that he just ordered pizza and that his friend was delivering them. Marjorie wanted a piece, but Bill said it was just for the guys. Excuse me. So she went to KFC and then to Barnes and Noble. This story is so fucking dumb. It's more, more of a bad script. We need to leave, Marjorie. I have finished with my business project call. Now I am hungry and I am going to eat some pizza. Oh, great. I like pizza. Can I have some pizza, Bill? I'm also hungry. No, Marjorie. You may not have pizza. It is a guy's only pizza lunch. Marjorie now said she noticed that traffic was backed up on Peach Street. She said uh, she then stopped at Bill's house, but didn't go inside. Why not? Who knows? This is a dumb fucking story. Uh, She said that she went home and saw Brian Wells on TV now. And that was that. That's all she knows. Holy shit. That was not a good alibi story. And the jury did not buy it. November 1st, 2010, Marjorie Deal Armstrong convicted of conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, armed bank robbery in which death resulted and use of a destructive device in furtherance of a crime of violence. Hail fucking Nimrod. February 28, 2011, she sends to life in prison plus another 30 years. Marjorie said in court, I am not a crazed killer. The true killers are still out there. Ah, no, you're pretty fucking crazy. And a killer. Three kills, actually. As many as some serial killers. Uh, U.S. Attorney uh, Pisanini 
uh, said at her sentencing, she does have mental illness, but when you combine this woman's serious mental illness with her personality disorder, her narcissism, her paranoia, her deception, her manipulativeness, you combine that into one person with evil, and this is the type of crime that results. The combination of Marjorie Deal Armstrong and her propensity towards violence in this particular case proved deadly. Bingo! Well said. Both mentally ill and also evil. Uh, June 6, 2011, Kenneth Barnes' sentence is now reduced to just 22 years at a closed hearing for his role in all of this. January 14, 2013, Marjorie Deal Armstrong loses her final appeal to the Supreme Court. She claims she was innocent and mentally incompetent to stand trial. Of course, she claimed that. Just keep trying to work the system. Summer of 2013, documentary director Trey Borzarelli still wants to ask Marjorie some questions. All of her appeals have now been denied, so he hopes that she'll be willing to talk more honestly. They talk again. Marjorie tells him that she thought Brian Wells was involved in the heist. And then she became very angry when Borzarelli said he thought Brian was innocent. And that was it for that day's interview. They talk again several months later. Marjorie is probably desperate for any visitors. And this time she informs him that Jessica Hoopsick was in the same prison for her as a, uh, for a drug charge. Uh, she said that Jessica was bad-mouthing her, so she had to have a conversation with her about it. Borzarelli now writes to Jessica and she responds. Jessica didn't write about the bank heist, but she did write about Brian. She said that even though he paid her for sex, they eventually became friends. And in a later conversation with Borzarelli, she said Brian took her to the doctor, helped her with grocery shopping, even met her mom and her sister. She said they had special feelings for one another, but it was not love. Jessica said that Marjorie approached her in prison and said things like, you fucking whore, I'm going to kill you. And I don't care whether we're inside or outside of these prison walls. I'm going to find you and I'm going to send somebody after you. Uh, Yeah, that sounds like Marjorie. Jessica ended up successfully getting a restraining order against Marjorie uh, and then was eventually moved to a new facility. She soon got out of that facility on a work release program and requested an interview for Borzarelli's documentary claiming she had something else important to say. She wanted people to know that Brian was innocent and that he was a good man. She told Borzarelli that one day she walked into Ken Barnes' house, saw that Ken and a couple friends were planning a bank robbery. Ken wanted her to find a so-called, quote, gopher, G-O-F-E-R, to commit the robbery. He wanted someone who would be scared into acting and would not run away or call the cops. They said the bomb wouldn't be real. It would just be a scare tactic to get the gopher to go into the bank. And she claimed she was offered $5,000 to find the right guy. Jessica said she called Ken later, asked for money in exchange for naming someone. He offered her some crack and she was like, okay, cool. And now she told him that she knew a man named Brian who was, quote, a pushover. And that is how Brian was pulled into all this bullshit. The final bit of the mystery has been solved. Right, this had to have been weighing on her conscience. Shitty that it happened, but good on her for sharing that info when she did not need to. Jessica said she arranged to bring Brian over the next week and that Marjorie, you know, in addition to the cracks she got from getting paid her $1,500 the next day. Uh, finally, the documentary revealed that Jessica had a baby shortly after the heist and she believes Brian Wells was the father. So a little more sadness related to Brian. That sucks. But now for some good news. April 4th, 2017, a real life wicked witch 68-year-old Marjorie Deal Armstrong dies of cancer at the Federal Medical Center Carswell near Fort Worth, Texas. Her psychotic bullshit days are over. Then on June 20th, 2019, 65-year-old Kenneth E. Barnes dies at the Federal Medical Center at Butner, North Carolina. He suffered from diabetes, but his cause of death not immediately available. Finally, just last summer, August 10th, 2022, 75-year-old Floyd Stockton Jr. died somewhere in Washington State. In January of 2023, Floyd's family members said that he claimed he wrote down what really happened in the pizza bomber plot and that when he died, it would get into the right, fall into the right hands. I haven't heard any more about it. Uh, Stockton's ex-wife, Janet Johnson, released a statement after his death saying 
He was an evil, sick rapist, abuser, and murderer who got enjoyment of showing power over other people. I shed no tears, but find peace in his death. And his daughter, Jolene Wilson, said, I love the man he should have been. His evil won his soul. I'm thankful I only got the goodness of him. I will find peace knowing he's gone and can't hurt or reflect his evil on anyone else ever again. And that's it. Other than minor player in all this, Jessica Hoopsick, all the pizza bombing conspirators are dead. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. What a weird-ass convoluted crime, right? Of course it took a while for the FBI, ATF, and local law enforcement to solve this. I mean, after Brian Wells was killed by that weird collar bomb, and then all the notes were found in his car, after they knew where he worked, even after his coworker OD'd a few days later, who on earth would have had a clue what the actual truth was in all this? Detective Sonny Hollister here. Cheesecake Factory store detective. I had a clue. I saw it all right from the start. A 46-year-old pizza delivery driver robs a bank with a bomb collar to his neck. A bunch of notes are found in his car, full of robbery and scavenger hunt instructions. His 43-year-old pizzeria co-worker overdoses a few days later. I could have laid the whole thing out right then and there. Come on, wake up and smell the bang-bang chicken and shrimp. Clearly, Brian was dating a lady of the night who saw him as an easy mark. And when she walked in on her crack dealer one night while he was having a meeting with his mentally ill, evil fishing buddy and a few friends who were all planning a bank robbery, that crack dealer obviously offered to pay her to bring a sucker to him to rob the bank with a bomb tied to his neck and then be killed immediately after handing her crack dealer's fishing buddy's former fiancé the money she needed to pay the crack dealer to kill her father so she could collect her inheritance before her dad spent it all. Textbook. It's all right there if you know how to look. Now, if you'll excuse me, I smell a dining dash brewing on the back patio. It's a summer heat. It really brings out the worst in people. Okay. Sorry, that's just a really fun uh, voice for me to do. Uh, So other than suck for a store detective, Sonny Hollister, who could have seen that shit coming? Nobody. It was all so fucking ridiculous. What a strange and little twisted cast of characters out there in Erie, Pennsylvania. The pizza bomber hides such a complex web of relationships, crimes, and greed, insanity, Let me summarize one more time before the takeaways. Bill Rothstein and Marjorie Deal Armstrong were once young lovers, excuse me, who met in their 20s and were engaged, but their relationship didn't work out. Still, Bill never stopped loving Marjorie, even when she descended further and further into mental illness, even when she became a more and more terrible person. Bill and Marjorie had their own previous run-ins with the law. Bill, when he hit a friend's murder weapon, Marjorie, when she killed her boyfriend. Both Bill and Marjorie were highly intelligent, cunning people. Marjorie especially was known to be intensely intelligent and very manipulative. One of Marjorie's favorite hobbies was fishing. That is how she met Kenneth Barnes. Ken, in addition to doing a fair amount of fishing and TV repairs, you know, also dealt some uh, crack. And he allowed sex workers to use rooms in his house. Bringing Brian Wells to the picture now, he had a list of sex worker contacts, one of whom was Jessica Hoopsick. Hoopsick purchased drugs from Ken, also used his house to serve his clients. Marjorie Deal Armstrong's mother passed away in 2000. She and Marjorie's father once had a sizable estate, but it had decreased significantly after her mother's death. This infuriated Marjorie. She decided to hire Kenneth Barnes to kill her dad before he used up the remainder of the money, the remainder of his own fucking money. Marjorie thought she needed to rob a bank to pay Ken enough money for him to kill her dad, which set the whole crazy pizza bomber heist in motion. Marjorie allegedly asked Kenneth about building a pipe bomb and supplied the two timers that were used to make the deadly collar bomb. 
It is believed her old flame, Bill, smartest guy in the room, Rothstein, built the bomb. According to Jessica Hoopsick, Barnes asked for someone they could use as a pawn to commit the robbery, and she offered up Brian, who may or may not have been involved in the planning. The plan was finalized at a meeting on August 27th. The next day, August 28th, the collar bomb was locked around Brian's neck, giving him 55 minutes to live. In the end, it seems that Brian was truly a victim. He appeared to be operating under the impression that the collar bomb was fake until it was too late to save himself. The co-conspirators set him up to die once they got the money from the bank or once he got it. The co-conspirators' plan also quickly fell apart when Bill panicked when Brian walked out of the bank and he failed to grab the damn money. Brian tried to follow the scavenger hunt outlined uh, in the notes, likely written by Bill, to keep the bomb connected to him from going off in case it was real, which it was, but he was apprehended moments after robbing the bank and then he died in a parking lot surrounded by investigators when it exploded. This twisted plot took several years to unravel. Of course it did, but it was unraveled. Kudos to some tenacious investigators. Once a van spotted by a documentarian cracked the case, slowly but surely the conspirators turned on one another and revealed their versions of the truth. And through analyzing all these versions, in the end, I think we're left with a pretty clear picture of what went down. We got it just in time, just before all the conspirators died. Time now for our takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Brian Wells was an ordinary man living in Erie, Pennsylvania. He had a job as a pizza delivery driver, rented a small house that he shared with three cats, took his mom to the movies, was considered a nice guy in his neighborhood, liked to gamble, but didn't really value money or material things. This is why many people who knew him did not believe he could ever be a willing participant in the elaborate pizza bomber heist even if investigators believe he was recruited and participated in the planning only to be turned into a victim at the last minute when the live bomb was locked around his neck. I think he did it all to make the woman he loved happy, Jessica Hoopsick. Number two, who was the mastermind? Was it Marjorie Deal Armstrong or was it Bill Rothstein? While the letters in the bomb had been attributed to Bill, it was Marjorie's idea to rob the bank. She was angry with her dad because he was spending what she considered her inheritance She wanted her friend Kenneth Barnes to kill him and Kenneth jokingly asked for a large down payment. Marjorie recruited Barnes and Bill to help her with the robbery to get that payment. To me, while the idea was Marjorie's, Bill was the mastermind. If you can call anyone involved in this ridiculous bullshit a mastermind. Number three, investigators will likely never be able to say with certainty who built the collar bomb or if it was even one person. We think it's probably Bill. We know that Marjorie supplied uh, some bomb components. We know Bill Rothstein was a highly intelligent handyman. We also know that Kenneth Barnes had magazines about explosive electronics inside his house and was a TV repairman. Because Rothstein died early on in the investigation, it'll be very difficult or impossible to fully prove he built the collar bomb. But again, I think it was him. Number four, the last living conspirator, Jessica Hoopstick, changed her story during the filming of the Evil Genius docuseries and claimed that Brian was the gopher selected to commit the robbery This doesn't match her testimony at Marjorie's trial. Investigators have disputed her account of events, but if that wasn't the truth, why did she share it? She was already going to be in the documentary, so it's not like she needed uh, her 15 minutes of fame. Uh, She was already getting it. I think a guilty conscience led to her finally sharing some of the last details regarding the pizza bomber mystery. And number five, new info, Mamma Mia's Pizzeria. May 14, 2019, the Imperial China Buffet on Peach Street caught fire the damage spread to several nearby businesses, including Mamma Mia's Pizzeria. On June 28th of that year, Mamma Mia's Pizzeria announced on Facebook that they would be unable to reopen in their original location where they had been for 39 years. However, if you Google Mamma Mia's Pizzeria, Erie, PA, they do have an active Google listing, an active Facebook uh, page, and a website. They have reopened, uh, or they reopened, excuse me, November 7th, 2019, 
at a larger location on 38th Street next to a hardware store and a Dollar General. Seems like they're still there and they still deliver. Right now, you can get two small pepperoni pizzas for $19.50 plus tax. Of course, that does not include a tip for the delivery driver or uh, yeah, delivery guy, delivery gal. Uh, be sure if you order anything to treat them a lot better than Marjorie and her crew treated Brian Wells. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Pizza bomber, the death of Brian Wells has been sucked. Mystery, I think, solved. Uh, think, yeah, uh, thanks to the, uh, the guys who did the Evil Genius docuseries for putting that all together. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team for helping making time suck. Thanks once again to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. To the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, producing and directing today. Uh, the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., also helping with production. Thanks to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, Logan Keith, again, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. And for helping run socials with the Suck Ranger and a team managed by Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Olivia Lee for all the research this week. A lot of newspaper database diving. Also, thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week on Time Suck, holy shit. Uh, we're going to look at one of the most controversial figures of modern music, R. Kelly. Or as he called himself, the Pied Piper of R&B. He would explain to GQ Magazine, I started calling myself the Pied Piper when I started using the flute sound in my music. I was the Pied Piper. For those of you who don't know, the legend of the Pied Piper is this. The Piper was hired by the people of Hamelin, Germany, to lure away all the town's rats with his music. And then when he did so, and the adults of Hamelin refused to pay him, the Pied Piper took revenge by luring away all of their children. How familiar was R. Kelly with this story when he said he was the Pied Piper? In the wake of disturbing allegations in 2017, allegations that he had led young women out of their parents' homes, lured them with luxury and intrigue of a celebrity, then trapped young women in his properties in some kind of bizarre sex cult, that nickname would seem to speak to a much darker reality. Unfortunately, by the time it was widely made public, this behavior was nothing new. While the singer put out some iconic songs throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, like I Believe I Can Fly, behind the scenes, he was preying on whichever young women were unlucky enough to fall into his orbit. Everyone from the children of some of his musical uh, musical collaborators to kids he met visiting his old high school. One of these girls was allegedly as young as 14 when R. Kelly started having sex with her. And though many knew he had a problem, first people in his inner circle, then practically the whole music-loving world when his sex tape with one girl was leaked in 2000, R. Kelly continued to walk free until very recently. In recent years, incidents of abuse formerly believed to have been isolated now are thought to have been part of what some have called a full-fledged sex cult. The strange, sad, disturbing story of R. Kelly next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. I'm going to kick shit off with a fun Cummins Law update. Super Sucker and Fun Mom, Sarah Ralston, was recently shamed by her daughter. She writes, okay, hear me out. What parent doesn't love embarrassing their child? Personally, it's a burning passion of mine. Not like it do. I've embarrassed my children in many ways, which is an entirely different story, but sadly has now backfired. My oldest child is my daughter, Nora. She's 11. She has my dark sense of humor, which makes it dangerous for us to be together in public. We were listening to the Jeffrey Lundgren episode on her way to softball practice. Now, Nora either leaves practice elated and floating on cloud nine or infuriated and silently plotting horrible things in her head. There's no in between. Anywho, this was an angry day and she was making her way back to the car while I was talking to one of the other parents. 
She called out to me a few times, trying to get my attention, waving for me to get to the car. I knew she was upset and wanted to leave, but I'm the adult and no 11-year-old is going to tell me how to live my life. (laughs) All of a sudden, she turns the key enough for the radio to come on. She timed it on my phone to the exact moment Dan started singing his off-brand Prophet Jeffrey Fighting Man song at full blast. Needless to say, I looked at the terrified parents' faces, shrugged my shoulders, and walked away. Nora one, mom zero. I've never been so proud. Thanks for reading. If you read this, please shout out Nora. She is the coolest and most unique girl ever. And it brings me so much joy to be able to say that she is mine. Oh, keep on keeping on, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. That's awesome. I love how much you love Nora. Uh, Nora, you sound funny as shit. Uh, for a reminder, the chorus of that song is, Do you want to get pooped on? Do you want to get pooped on? Prophet Jeffrey knows what you want, and you want to get pooped on. <laughs> I just love blasting that to all the softball uh, parents. Sarah, I hope you, uh, I hope Nora, uh, you and Nora keep learning and laughing together for many, many years to come. Uh, both Kyler Monroe have my sense of humor now, and it is a joy and a terror at times. Uh, I got annoyed by Monroe throwing food at the uh, dinner table the other night, but then remembered that I've been bouncing food off of her forehead uh, during meals for pretty much her whole life. Uh, sometimes at restaurants or maybe at the movie theater, right? Or when she's walking down the sidewalk, just minding her own business. Uh, the other night, she and Kyler attacked me during dinner and pinned me uh, to the floor in the corner. I legitimately worried about them hurting me sometimes. Uh, I've done this to myself because I've slapped them around for their whole lives and now they're big and strong and like slapping me around. The tables are turning, but it's very fun. I have a feeling Nora is going to be tormenting you for many years to come. Now for a message that's a little more intense from Lou Saunders. Lou writes, hey, Dan, Lindsay, and all the other gorgeous, totally non-reptilian, 100% humans at Time Suck and Bojangles, who was never a human to begin with. Uh, Just finished episode 346, Mount St. Helens. And I was struck by something you said. You were talking about government regulation and oversight uh, regarding trying to get people to stay away from the volcano and brought up how people are generally fine with regulations as long as it doesn't fuck with anything that they want to do. You use the comparison that people who want to regulate abortions seem to generally be anti-vaccine mandate and how people who are pro-choice when it comes to vaccines are generally also pro-vaccine mandate. And while I get how you pulled that comparison, it seemed unfair to me and I wanted to bring it up. Someone getting an abortion affects only themselves, maybe their partner, if that person is involved, and obviously the fetus. Uh, It's a personal health decision. And at the end of that personal decision, it has a limited impact radius. Deciding not to get a vaccine is also a personal health decision, but the impact radius is much wider and can be much more damaging. We've seen in the past few years how folks who claim personal freedom over objective science can have an impact on already at-risk minority groups like the elderly and immunocompromised, as well as people who don't have a choice but to be out and working. If you're all about personal responsibility and personal freedoms, oh, excuse me, I know you're all about personal responsibility and personal freedoms, but living in a society the way that we do and affording the benefits of that lifestyle means that we also have some amount of responsibility for our fellow humans. Not getting a vaccine against a life-threatening virus is a choice that not only endangers the person who makes the decision, but also all of the people around them who may not have a choice. Abortion doesn't have the same impact. Normally, I would not write in about something like this, but I felt it was important, wanted to point it out. I also know that the Time Suck community is a safe place to vocalize disagreements. Uh, That's one of my favorite things about your podcast and the people around it. I might not always agree with you, but you go about your discussions in a respectful way. Mostly, I feel like. And (laughs) I try. And are always open to learning and considering other opinions. I really appreciate that, especially considering the state of the world today. If you read this, could you please give a shout out to one of the best space lizards out there, Danny M. She's the one who got me hooked on Time Suck by cleverly introducing me to the history and biography episodes before unleashing the full gambit of weird and crazy. 
She's one of my best friends since third grade, an absolutely kind, selfless, kick-ass, amazing human, and she has saved my life more than once. Life has dealt her a shittier hand than most, but she's always done her best and is still not jerky to others. Love the show, even if I don't listen to the murdery episodes. <laughs> it's gotten me through some long days. Keep on doing what you do and keep on sucking. Lou. Lou, uh, thank you for sending in a thought-provoking update. And thanks, Danny, for getting Lou to at least uh, dip Lou's toes in the time suck pool. Uh, here's where I currently stand with the freedom to have not gotten specifically the COVID vaccine the past few years. Do I think you should, uh, you know, early on for the good of the general public gotten the, the vaccine? I do. Do I think you should have been forced to get it? I don't. Uh, here's why did not, did not getting it increase the risk of injury and even death to people who couldn't get vaccinated for whatever reason I did. So why would I support uh, freedom here? Well, philosophically, I am just opposed to the government mandating most things. Uh, but also specifically with COVID, the global median infection mortality rate, more importantly, more important, excuse me, than case fatality rate. Uh, sorry, I'm just battling something in my throat right now. Uh, for COVID in 2020, when it was the most fatal, was 0.23%, which means for every thousand people who were infected with COVID, 2.3 people would die. And to me, that number is just not high enough to mandate a population taking a vaccine that was made for profit by massive pharmaceutical companies that, in my opinion, lost the right to be fully trusted when they created the opioid crisis that has killed more Americans and I'm guessing killed more people around the world than COVID has. And I know Pfizer didn't specifically do that, but like collectively, a lot of shady shit has gone on with them that makes them, you know, I, I think gives credence to people being skeptical to trust them. Uh, because of a low fatality rate combined with I think logical apprehension regarding big pharma, I don't feel like people should have had their freedom infringed upon in this instance. But I'm also someone who doesn't think recreational drugs or sex work should be legal. I don't think the government should be able to weigh in on that shit. I don't think the government should be able to decide who gets an abortion or who gets to talk about being gay at school. I don't think the government should get to decide what adults, you know, uh, what adult, another adult gets to marry and a lot more. There's a lot I don't like the government weighing in on. And with that mentality, I also support Second Amendment advocates. Right, You start allowing the government to take away one group's freedoms how long before they come for yours. I just am very apprehensive when it comes to uh, how much control the government has, how much power. Because uh, I'm always thinking about precedents and slippery slopes when it comes to this stuff. I do see your point. Right? I don't think you're wrong. I like your message. Uh, we do have a responsibility to not endanger others in society. And that responsibility is what makes a lot of this, I think, very complicated. When do you lean more towards safety and when do you lean more towards freedom? Right, I, I think it's really hard to know oftentimes. And I freely admit, I might get it wrong a lot of times, but that's where my tendency lies towards the freedom side. And why, I guess. Uh, next up, a shout out request from a thoughtful sack, Courtney Hannon, who writes, salutations, bad magic team. Dan, your specific method of madness, hilarity, and thoughtfulness merge into a rare production combination that is spectacularly informative, mush mouth and all. Thank God. Uh, I've envisioned myself writing to you for some reason or another for a while now. Honestly, I can't think of a better one than to say happy birthday to one of my dearest friends. It will be belated, but I know if this message is read aloud on the podcast, she will be more than giddy, so I must try. Katrina is one of the most genuine, thoughtful, creative, and intelligent meat sacks I've ever known. She's also quite the chef. We met working at a copy and print shop in college where she astounded me with her artistic skill, precision, and musical depth. Not long after, uh, she asked me to be in her bridal party then her, mine, and the rest is history. She is now a mom to a wonderful little girl, and I'm so proud of her for being the brave badass that she is and always was. Katie, may your next spin around the sun be one of great possibilities and joy. 
Thanks for all that you've taught me, including how I should listen to a podcast called Time Suck. The cult the curious has been passed on through me as well. So thank you, Suckmaster, for taking a leap of faith. Forge this community bonded by quirky, compelling knowledge. Hail Nimrod, Courtney. Well, thank you, Courtney. Uh, you are too nice. And I love how much you value your friendship with Katie, right? Old and fantastic friendships, they just can't be replaced. Uh, so glad that you are wisely cherishing this one. Hope you both keep on sucking. And finally, a ridiculous Cummins Law situation from Wes Nabbitt, who writes, I'm sure red-faced. Damn it, Dan, you finally got me. I've enjoyed listening to the many Cummins Law stories over the years and thought it would never happen to me. But alas, it finally has. <laughs> I was listening to the Fountain Cult episode on my way from work to pick up my daughter from daycare. The episode was interrupted by a phone call that took up the remainder of the drive. Once I got to my daughter's daycare, I ended the call. It was hot outside. So I rolled all my windows halfway down to make sure it didn't get too hot in the car while I was inside. I picked up my daughter. I got her all buckled in and started the car. With a parking lot full of parents, I was greeted with Dan yelling at high volume. Do you have any idea how many women around the world love Jesus? I got millions of women who would kill someone to suck my dick. And yet here I sit with a dry dick, not in anyone's mouth. Unbelievable and unacceptable. When I say I want to speak from my heart, I mean groin. Now that I've said my piece, we can open our Beebles back up. <laughs> I was scrambling to get the podcast to pause, volume to turn down, or just turn the radio off. But when my radio is Bluetooth to my phone, there's a delay in everything I do. I don't know why I didn't just turn the car off, but I panicked. I received a lot of shock stares from fellow parents. It's a bit hard to make eye contact with many of them now. Thanks for everything you and the Bad Magic family does. I've been a fan for your, uh, of, I've been a fan of your stand-up and the podcast from the very beginning, and your work has kept me entertained through countless hours working on my desk, long drives, doing the dishes, etc. I hope you keep it going for many years to come. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. Here come the spoons, motherfucker. Your loyal fan, Wes Nasbitt. Oh, man. Thank you, Wes. Holy shit. That's one of the most embarrassing coming law situations I've heard yet. I'm going to love with you. Even if you did fully explain what you were listening to to those other parents, uh, you're still somewhat fucked, right? They're still going to think you're a dirtbag. Uh, but you know what? Also, you're, you're free now. You're free there. You might as well let them hear even more crazy shit. What do you have to lose? Who cares? They already think you're nuts. So have fun with that. And hail Nimrod, everyone. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death and time suck each week and the secret suck each week for space lizards. Uh, please don't try and talk your crack-dealing fishing buddy and former fiancé uh, who has the body of someone you murdered in their freezer into blowing up a pizza delivery guy in order to get enough money to kill your dad this week. Just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Detective Sonny Hollister here again, Meat Sacks. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If I've been asked to weigh in on this case, of course, there would be no mystery and no episode. But alas, I remain relegated to Cheesecake Factory investigative purgatory. Thanks to a few crime scene contamination incidents. Who cares if a little coffee gets spilled? You don't need all the evidence to be clean, if you have a mind like I do. Last week, I caught a guy trying to walk off with someone else's to-go order of Adam's peanut butter cup fudge ripple cheesecake. I knew he hadn't ordered anything from us the second he walked in wearing his Pantera t-shirt, board shorts, and Nike slides. I just thought, no. No, you didn't order anything from the factory, buddy. You got BJ's Brewhouse written all over you. 
You're not factory material. And I was right. Now, did I need to break his arm when I stopped him from running off with stolen goods? Maybe not, but you play with fire, you get burned. And I am the only guy burning anything at the Cheesecake Factory, let me tell you. Everything here is cooked to perfection. Trust me. I eat here around ten times a week. What was I talking about? I forget. Anyway, you take care. I got a bad feeling about the old couple that Julie just set at table 37. 